Welcome to the podcast, Appetite for Distortion, episode number 278. My name is Brando. Another episode you can watch on our YouTube channel as we do Zoom, as we continue to feel, feel our quarantine as I'm in Queens. Stephen Darrow. Steve Darrow, where are you? You look like you're in a cave somewhere. I am, but it's, it's in Hollywood, California cave. <laughs> oh, I can't believe it's taken 278 episodes yeah. for me to, to, to finally get to speak with you, somebody who literally the roots of, of Guns N' Roses. So before I forget it, uh, let me just thank uh, Richard Beinstock, uh, the author for for connecting us so steve yeah. thank you so much for your time and joining uh, me today yeah it's about time <laughs> you have a very jerry cantrell look i had no idea i'm like what is steve because especially when you see pictures of guys in the 80s i'm like what do they look like now yeah, yeah. nobody looks the same i'm like oh am i interviewing jerry cantrell what's going on here <laughs> yeah yeah last picture i saw him he had a little gray thing going here too so it's what happens <laughs> are you uh are you la born and raised is that where you're you're, yeah. you're from okay cool mm-hmm. i'm not I, I i also 278 episodes of doing a guns N' roses podcast and talking about that scene i have yeah. yet to go out to the west coast oh i am well, uh, if, you, if I you look like for example basically where i am right now and where i've been for the last 30 plus years is you know if you look at mark canner's reckless road book there was like a map that said the jungle. Yeah. It was a visual, almost like a monopoly game of like all the clubs and all the rehearsal places and the recording studios and the hangouts from the hot places in Hollywood. I'm like kind of smack dab in the middle of that. Okay. Like I'm a block from what was that little miniature rehearsal studio that they all moved into uh, that they called, they had a wacky name for it. It was like, the Gardner Street Hotel and Suites, which <laughs> their sarcastic word for a room that was about 12 by 12, and all of them lived with their equipment. Still. Don't worry. I, I'm not going to ask you the question of how was the Sunset Strip in the 80s. I'm not <laughs> going to ask. Cool. <laughs> it was cool. I, I know. I, I, I want to relive it not just by asking those a generic question, but getting to, to know you. You know, okay. what kind of kid were you and, and what influenced you to go along this path? You know, what was little, what was little Steven like, not the little Bruce Steven Springsteen, you not the, the not disciples the... of rock. Yeah. Um, well, I guess if you go back, it starts with my family. He was all musicians and artists as well. And my dad, um, so raised, you know, born in the sixties. So raised going to concerts and love-ins and, recording studios with my dad and his bands. And uh, he was in, um, started out in the folk boom of like the early, early sixties and the surf music, and then got into electric rock, you know, garage bands. And that led into psychedelia. Then he ended up being in um, 
a couple bands uh, in the late sixties, mid to late sixties when I was just, just born. Uh, well, that's cool that your dad was in psychedelic bands. Yeah. And then he, so him, he was in a band called the Kaleidoscope in the sixties. Of course. And another member of the Kaleidoscope, David Lindley married my dad's sister. Okay. Uh, so he became my uncle. And so they were both basically, uh, you know, living in the same town. And I was kind of bounced back and forth between growing up in, uh, in their ho- households, both of them. And, and so I was always around, you know, stripping on cords when I was a little kid and gear everywhere and weird people coming over and <laughs> sort of similar to like, if you've, uh, I didn't ever talk to him much about it until recent years, but I mean, slash kind of has the same, uh, upbringing a little okay. bit just with, you know, cause his, his mother was in the sort of rock, uh, clothing designer world, the and, David Bowie world. And yeah, you're just yeah. surrounded by it. Right. It's yeah. And he was like in the thick of things in like Laurel Canyon and Hollywood. And I was in the thick of things like, you know, out, uh, you know, like in the suburbs of, of Hollywood and, uh, was you know anyway so uh basically i grew up with you know up until i was about 11 or 12 i was the the stuff that my parents were into was it got went you know it went from psychedelia quickly into like the super mellow laid back california okay 70s early 70s singer songwriter sound and uh both my dad and my uncle went off to be kind of well-known or well, not well known, but sought after sidemen, musicians mm. for, for those people, like in the studio. Like my dad played on the first James Taylor record. Oh wow! You know, and my uncle went on to play with Jackson Brown and Linda Ronstadt and Crosby's Nash, and you know, blah blah blah. And then he had his. Then once they got into the later seventies, the eighties, they had their own solo album. So, oh wow! Um, so I was kind of you know weaned. <laughs> on psychedelia and stuff but then once i got to work where i was you know adolescent i was like this is just so mellow (laughs) i was like you know ready to like you know like a 12 year old kid wants to do so i got into surfing and skateboarding and motocross and uh then that quickly led into punk rock you know and uh i was in a band in junior high school by the time uh you know i was playing started playing drums which is what I started out playing. Um, and no one in the family played drums either. Every, you know, so everyone played everything else. So like, is that well, why you chose the drums? Like, is nobody in else a way, was- I think in a way it was just that. And, and B it was a, that was that, you know, cause you know, my father was known as like, I'm the guy who could play anything with strings. You know, I was, I could play mandolin. I could play ukulele, I could play banjo, I could play guitar, bass, blah, 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 blah. There was a drum set in the house for drummers to come and play when they'd record. But I think that meets the fact that it was like something to do when you were a kid. Uh, get your like, aggression out. Yeah. Like Bam Bam or Animal from the Muppets or something. Sure. <laughs> and so I kind of caught on real quick. And um, then my friends that I was growing up with, they, you know, they went to, one of them went to England on a vacation with his parents in, uh, you know, 1977 or something during the Jubilee and came back with all these tales of this thing, punk rock, mm-hmm. which was, you know, huge over there, but still here was like 
creepy, you know, just you had to really be dialed in to know about it. And so we just kind of went with sort of teenage abandoned into just getting into anything that was like that high energy and crazy and not, not the norm, you know, who were your favorite bands and what what was the age? Like when you, you saw your first concert, like for me, it's uh, obviously we're, we're different eras. Uh I guess if you're going to, if you want to count a a real band first concert, Uh Eve six. However, I like Eve six. Remember that band Eve six? They had like some big hits in the uh, in the nineties. Uh, yeah, Inside Out. My heart stuff. is in a blender. You know, twi- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, okay. that was my first. However, I like wow. to say my first. That's almost like in the third eye blind level. Yes, yeah, kind of the same uh, or same era. Mary three. <laughs> or does this earn me more cred? Because before that, when I was younger at Radio City Music Hall, I saw the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when they did wow. their they when they did their tour, coming out of their shells tour. If, if you look back in the video uh, videos, it's horrific, but yeah. it was great for her. I was you know. there, man. <laughs> I was there. So wow. I, I got to imagine you went to a, a – Yeah, a, well, we are from different eras. But, yeah. well, it's, <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of weird for me because, like I said, I was always getting dragged at, literally in a baby carriage or walking around to concerts with the parents. Okay. Right. And I went, you know, once – was going to like shows and limousines, you know, when my uncle would play at the forum or something like that Mm. as a kid, just because it was something different. But I think the first, the first bands that I really, uh, you know, actually tried to get tickets for and, and go to see and, and actually get a ride. It was before we could drive, we were old enough to drive. So it was, you know, 13 or whatever, but it was like Iggy pop and the runaways and the Ramones and, um, stuff like that, you know, I- around LA. And then there was a lot of club bands that were probably not really, you know, they're cult cult bands now looking at the past. It's like you had CBGBs and, you know, Mud Club and stuff like that in New York. We had clubs like that here that would just have the crazy local bands. So you'd get anybody from, you know, It'd be you know the weirdos one night and Van Halen the next night and you know a band like ACDC's first you know U.S. show at like the Whiskey the next night and then you know uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreak you know so it was all this kind of stuff that was happening in like the late seventies just on a club level like not even forget like the big concerts and stuff but just clubs so we saw a lot of those crazy bands uh, so so when you're seeing I mean. Obviously, you can't know the the heights at Van Halen and ACDC that you know how at at that time, but you know the energy, and that's what you're looking for—the adrenaline. So when you're going to concerts, whether you were you know carrying in a stroller or you were buying it for the first time, you're buying it for yourself or however, uh, did you think like this is what I want to do with my life, like as a profession, or was it or did it was just you know, part of your family and maybe did you have an, another goal or was it like, Hey, this, I want to be, I want to do It was that. both, you know, both to be okay. honest. I mean, like I said, I probably, you know, like every little kid wants to grow up to be a baseball player or, a soccer player <laughs> sure. or a professional skateboarder or something or <laughs> serial killer or whatever they sure <laughs> aspire to be, uh, you know, and then, like I said, I was pretty sporty for up until, you know, early high school. And it was like, no, I just, I'm full on, I got to go rock world, art world. (laughs) And, you know, being into punk rock at that time, it was, 
you know, it became later on, it just became a uniform for, for disenfranchised jocks that were shaving their heads and just kicking people's asses that didn't look right. But they were, that, that wasn't what, it, when I was starting out that it was all about at all. It was much more, uh, individual and everyone was different and everyone was crazy and everyone was crazy in their own cool way <laughs> and high energy. But like you'd find, you'd find your people, you'd find your tribe of people that were similar and you could like pogo and, you know, jump around and mm. maybe even throw a punch every once in a while, but it wasn't like the full on violent, like black flag, you know, hardcore post you know, all that kind of stuff, like it turned into. So, uh, and then, you know, uh, of course, since it was a, such a weird time, like of our age, my age, same with the GNR guys, most of them are around the same age. Mm -hmm. A couple of them are older. A couple of them are tad younger. It was like still the seventies and the seventies was still, even when you're a teenager, still all about heavy sure. metal and, uh, you know, stone, you know, getting stoned, like listening to Zeppelin, listening to Kiss, listening to Aerosmith. And then, or if you're a little bit more sensitive, you were into Peter Frampton or the <laughs> Mac or disco, if you were really messed up. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, it was like, I was even before I got bitten by the punk and stuff. I mean, I was listening to my dad's, you know, his, the heavier records in his collection was just like, Steppenwolf and Blue Cheer and Hendrix, okay. and that kind of stuff. But then uh, when I then I gravitated into Alice Cooper and Black Sabbath and Deep Purple and that stuff that kids and then like like if I was twelve, the guys in high school who were a ha handful of years older than me were all listening to. And then and then punk rock hit, and it became it was so segmented it, back then. It was like okay, well you either got to choose you can't like Sabbath and you can't like the sex pistols. You just can't. It's, it's hard to explain now, but like back then it really was divided. Like at least if you wanted any kind of cred from <laughs> Sure. So it was hard, you know, especially growing up uh, in that time and around when people were just, you know, you look at like fast times at Ridgemont high or a movie like that, mm -hmm. you know, my school was basically those guys you know, and then there was like the one, you know, they had the girl that had cultivated the Pat Benatar look, you know, and sure. yeah. it was one of her, you know, and everyone was like, wow, who's that? You know, and then, but I had, anyway, so. Were you the Spicoli? Were you the I'm not so much Spicoli. I did go to school with, with him though, like full on Spicoli, like more, <laughs> I lived in Orange County for a year with my dad and, you know, down by the beach and there was full on Spicoli like and his buddies he had the red-haired friend you know that they all wore shorts and puka uh, <laughs> shells I mean it was like totally legit like wow and then if you had to watch another movie like you know Dazed and Confused sure which everybody almost everyone from any age group from 60 to 40 years old now could go that was my high school and it, it really was <laughs> even though it was set in Texas and it was set in 76 it was really like you know, you had the stoners and you had the jocks and you had the, the dreamers, like the, the kind of like, you know, I forget the guy's name, but the guy was like the sort of 
anxious guy that was hanging around with the nerd kids and the girl with the red hair and i just want to dance man you know that guy yeah yeah it was those guys and they became more like the people that i sort of hung out with once punk broke because they went they went into the nerdy intellectual you know way uh because they they fit in with that more you know and then the other guys were just kicking ass and worrying about what they're gonna you know what party they're gonna go to (laughs) anyway so uh, it was really hard. And then, uh, but I, I had this sort of, I never got, I never shaved my head. I never had a mohawk. I, I always had basically like this, which gave me a lot of grief and through all the punk rock time, but I managed to stick it out and all right, got a lot, a lot of shit, but I'm I glad you it, still have it. I still- yeah. Like some people like, they were destined to be bald from by the time they were in high school. You know? <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> so know. They just, yeah, they just got rid of it back then, and they kind of fit their look, you know. But it really was divided, and and then that's the weird thing about like sort of if you fast forward to, you know, when GNR was getting together when they were just called Rose, and before Hollywood Rose, even like kind of right when I met them, I was just coming out of playing in pretty underground punk goth like world you know death okay. rock they called it and i went to high school with like Roz, who was in christian death in our first bands together when i was 13 and he was 15 before anything happened we played like one or two gigs and that was it but so i grew up with this these guys that later you know i mean he's almost like the axel rose of goth rock he was <sighs> this kid that came from a you know really strange town pomona and turned into this icon after he was dead basically like became this spokesman for this whole sort of you know genre oh wow okay books written about him and there's you know stuff coming out all the time and people you know girls that are in high school that have his picture like spray painted on their leather jacket that weren't even born with you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> just like you see now with other people so sure. it was really weird coming out of that and then going straight into you know, pretty much LA metal, which is, you know. Yeah. So uh, how did that happen? How do you go from goth rock <laughs> to the glam and the tease? And yeah, they well, it's weird Guns and Roses at the time, but they, yeah, I guess, tell us how you made that transition from goth to glam. I well, guess I could phrase the, it. It was the title of your book, by the way, is going to be from goth to glam. Is that going to be the title of your upcoming book? Probably not, but something no. similar to that. <laughs> okay, okay. You know, because, uh, you know, the funny thing about it, I mean, it's kind of like the words hair metal now, mm-hmm. you know, associate with like nothing but a good time. That's pretty much hair metal encapsulated, right? But like we didn't say that back then. No one really said that. Right. Back then like your bunch of glam fags or your your poofs or your your glam guys or your you know this and that what was and, the phrase then that what was used if uh because you're saying that even just between sex pistol fans and black yeah. sabbath fans yeah so what was the phrase of you know what we call now hair metal was there hair metal? well like i said it was probably started out uh definitely glam glam rock like Glam rock to me associates with the seventies, the good stuff, you know, like Alice and the sweet and Bowie and Gary mm-hmm. glitter and, you know, the seventies boom, which, uh, but once it became anything sort of post Motley crew, really, as far as LA, 
um, club scene rock, you know, was, was basically like glam metal, glam. That's just kind of what they called it. So it, even within like the GNR guys, it, they weren't really even happy with, with that back then. I mean, they were kind of 50, 50 on being that type of band. Cause there's especially Izzy in those days was call it, you know, pretty much controlling the, the way that the band grew and it was like all about new york dolls and aerosmith and hannah rocks and stuff like that and then uh at that point there was just kind of a small batch of people that really even knew about that stuff if you were of that age you know if you were from 18 to like 25 and you knew about that stuff either from the old days or you knew about hanoi rocks which is this weird cult band from finland i mean this is before the internet so it's not like we just had stuff bombarded all the time it was like or, yeah we had to see a picture of them in a magazine it was like six months to a year old that came from europe and then you had to go whoa where do i get that record you know and then you yeah. had to explore you know huh. and you're it right it's kind of like a code word it, like in those days it's like if you were down with if you could if you're down with hanoi and you were down with aerosmith and you're down with acdc and you know, a couple other things. It was like, that was the GNR sort of like <laughs> password, you know? Okay. I like that. Yeah. So anyways, but as far as the transition for me, it was kind of like, it wasn't that hard because even though I was playing in those type of bands and those kind of clubs, even the band I was playing in towards the end uh, was basically within that scene was trying to go, we were trying to bum bum out the punk rockers. It was no, you know, we were, a lot of bands were a lot of bands that were around in the first wave were like, you know, screw that. Let's, let's go really weird. Let's go super arty or let's go super synthesizer or let's go super even black flag and bands like that were, were going like more black Sabbath, you know, and we were too, and we were all married makeup. And it was a little bit weird because like, that's kind of why initially like, we got sort of attracted to like crew and stuff like that. When we first saw them like around town, it was like, there was these guys and they were like older guys and they were like a cheap trick and stuff like that. But they looked like, you know, Nikki six could have been Susie, if Susie and the Banshees, you know, with his hair and and lipstick and boots and everything. And it was like, almost like we're confused, but (laughs) extremely fascinated. And then, for a couple of years, I think probably say from like 82 to like 85 or six, slowly became like a lot of people were jumping over the fence, you know, into uh, that scene uh, and getting into like, well, this stuff's okay. It's not your basic like jock metal. It's a little, you know, girls dig it. You know? <laughs> And it's just like the Van Halen kind of formula. It's like the girls dig it. Tons of girls show up at the show because they dig it. Then henceforth, tons of guys show up at the show because <laughs> there's a ton of girls there. Right. And it was just, at this point, it was just girl, guys dressing like girls. <laughs> girls looking, you know, the same, wearing not much clothes. And, you know, I mean, it, it, at the height of it all, it really was like, the stereotype that people think it was, you know, it wasn't like that all the time. And it wasn't like that everywhere, but there was times when it really was like chick strippers everywhere, chicks wearing hardly anything and hair up to here and guys with 
more makeup than the chicks. And, so since you never cut your hair, did you tease it? Did you use Aquanet? Oh, hell yeah. Okay, right on. Yeah, (laughs) you gotta send me. I think you sent me some of those pictures. I I, people are loving them. I appreciate that for me to share the the pictures you sent me of you and Axel and Baby Slash to put on social media. Like, wow, just this. You, I mean, you can barely see your face because you're like you are like animal. Even you switch to base, you're still like an animal behind. Yeah, that's the way I was back then, and you know, even uh, even even Axel was. We had a thing. Like once we, once I actually, you know, joined them as a bass player, uh, which I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but yeah, you know, we'll go back. Became like this, like he was like he was like that crazy six year old kid that you know just wanted to go out there and you know because at that point the band wasn't really doing much, like they weren't playing on a regular basis at all. Right. I mean, it was like every several months or a couple times a year, there was a gig. It wasn't really like there was never even a really consistent rehearsal pattern. So there wasn't like this. Okay, this is how I get my energy out. I'm going to, you know, rehearse for a week and then do a gig on the weekend and then rehearse for another week. And, you know, it was like these long stretches of like, uh, you know, abstinence from. Sounds like uh, uh, Guns N' Roses now which is uh, yeah. awesome. <laughs> Damn it. it wasn't like the Chinese democracy, like 15 year absence, but it was like, you know, when you're waiting for something to happen, it seems forever. It's like, when are we going to play, man? Yeah. You so I, I guess, but before I got to that point, you know, when you're obviously looking for bands, how did you get recruited? Cause it sounds like through the bands that you're, you're naming the music. Yeah. I think you even mentioned some of your athletic ability. You could yeah. see why you and slash would get along. And now with yeah. the energy, energy. But it's funny because I didn't actually meet him until um, quite a bit later. Okay, so who did uh, you meet? Slash, you know, we met Slash. Like, like you read all the stories. Axel was playing with Rapid Fire at the Gazaris, and you know, Izzy had seen this guy that drew the Aerosmith picture. Blah blah blah. And, you know, it was uh, so. I didn't actually meet him until really we started playing. But I had met Izzy and Axel. A good couple of years, like probably. So if I was hmm, probably like at the end of 1983 or wow. something like that, and I had just gotten out of that uh, band I was playing with and that scene basically, and uh, was starting to go see Wasp with Troubadour all the time, starting to see Crew with the Roxy, and those kind of bands that I thought I was checking them out because I go, there's something going on, you know, something else going on that's it's a good transition between just straight up like hardcore punk and, and, uh, you know, kind of jock metal at the time. It was just, uh, which I had no problem with, but just, I didn't really want to be in that scene, you know, the spandex and the spikes and everything. Sure. Um, I had no problem with hair and no problem with leather no problem with makeup, <laughs> no problem with, uh, any of that stuff, but uh, it was different the way that we sort of, you know, went, went through it. And uh, so anyways, I had uh, started just looking like everybody else, like before the internet and before Craigslist, we had this thing called Recycler. Yeah. Yeah. Magazine newspaper that came out every week. And it was just a, a classified ads. It was just everything. You could buy cars, you could buy pets, you could buy, you know, rent apartment rentals when they had, artists wanted musicians wanted actor gigs you know and so it was just this free paper and um seems like everybody you knew went to get the recycler on thursday and just looking for something 
and uh, same way Mick Myers had met right you know, Motley Cruz, I had the recycler that had a funny tag to it, like, and uh, I'd been seeing this ad, and I had been placing my own ads trying to find you know something that was more in that you know dark metal sort of glam thing that was Alice Cooper and, you know, uh, meets Judas priest meets, you know, the suite or something like that. But then at the same time, I was like, yeah, just the people were, I wasn't getting any, any of the right people weren't getting it, you know? And <laughs> sure. I was trying out for these bands that were just straightforward. Like, uh, like every other band in LA, there was just straightforward, you know, kind of Van Halen, journey lover boy kind of whatever or still some some leftover kind of other other punk guys that, that were getting into trying to play rock even like red cross and bands like that at the time were like sort of branching out into like being a little more hard rock or whatever and uh uh i don't really want to do that i want to go roots rock and new wave you know and that kind of thing and uh so anyways i i was down with Hanoi Rocks, I discovered them and I was like, wow, these are pretty fascinating. These guys are like, uh, I'm down with this band called Smack, that was also from Finland, um, who were a little bit more in the, like what I kind of thought Hanoi Rocks should have been like. They were sort of more like, you know, the Dead Boys meets, uh, you know, a hair metal band. Cause they were, but they were from Finland as well. And they only had really weird records that were really hard to find. And you couldn't mention their name to the average kid on the street and stuff and um i turned slash and actually onto them early on and they were like oh uh but anyway so i'd found an ad in the recycler and it was like really like boom boom it was like super super glam like it was the head it was the headline it was like um i guess they needed a drummer they needed okay. a drummer and a bass player. I think they had a bass player, but they're always kind of still looking for the right bass player. Okay. So they had Rich and they had Andre and, and a couple other people that were sort of leftover uh, people from Izzy's bands in the before days, like Shire and stuff like that. For sure. Yeah. And uh, and I'm looking at a timeline and I want to make sure I give well, credit to an, uh, Anthony uh, Mazzario sent me a timeline. And if I could show you, okay. it's so funny. He does like hand-drawn uh, arrows <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I see like Andre Trox was mm -hmm. there. Uh, Rick Mars mm -hmm. was in there. You know, Johnny Christ was in there. But, yeah, so uh, sorry, continue. I wanted to make I think, sure. Like, I think Johnny and Rick were in Shire, the span Shire with Izzy. Izzy, it, the Shire was around before, I think, as just sort of like striped spandex, you know, poofy hair kind of. Before I lose it, I want to. I want to ask about Shire. I don't mean to interrupt because it's it's actually kind of important because I had uh, Alan uh, St. Elisa yeah, Alan. on. So I don't know if you, you know, and I want to put this out in the universe, especially since you're in that area. I saw a video uh, brought to my attention recently that he's homeless. And it was a few, yeah, it was outside of McDonald's a couple of years ago. And I mean, it's a couple, I can only hope he's okay. I don't know if you Dude. know anything. Uh, I've the last few times I've seen him, I knew him actually pretty well after Shire because we both worked on Melrose when Melrose was like the shit, the place to be. It's kind of turned into the hood now. And it's where people just get their watches stolen <laughs> drive-bys. But it was like, I worked at a record store and he worked on the corner at a, at a gelato place. 
which was like unheard of back in the eighties. Like what's a gelato? <laughs> Just ice cream. What's, what the hell's going on here? And, you know, it was like a real trendy, like, you know, it was all gray and Euro looking and he was Italian and he was super good looking blonde, but he was Italian. Yeah. And could pronounce all the funny Italian words. And so I was literally like work next door to him. So we'd see each other every, you know, almost every day or a couple times a week. And he was sort of all, it was in the like post, you know, post guns and roses kind of taking off days. And we were all sort of like, sort of like the left, left behind sort of, people at that point mm-hmm. and uh all these other bands were starting kind of like in the wake of gnr getting popular and um anyway he was uh you know um had a good situation he had an older girlfriend and had a nice place and he was really polite and really seemed f- really uh fine you know really quiet soft-spoken and then i saw him i didn't see him for a long time and then this I did see him like 10 years later, he came running up to me on the street. Hey, stay. And I was like, who is this guy? And I was like, totally, totally, totally not like at all the same shape and size as Alan. Uh, you know, he almost looked like Lux interior from the cramps or something like that. He was a big, tall, gangly guy with short black hair and all these crazy clothes. And he was really boisterous. And I was like, you're not Alan. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he started like, Oh, you, what the hell happened? And then we, we caught up and then um, I go, okay, well, Alan's gone through some changes. Uh, he's totally into a different thing now. Uh, and then I'd bump into him occasionally around town at different places. And he was equally as, you know, different. And I didn't see him. And so anyways, long story short, just, I wouldn't doubt that that story is true at this point. The odd thing, the, the one ray of hope is that uh, I did Rock and Roll Ralphs, which is probably on the little map of the jungle, is, you know, about two blocks down from uh, Guitar Center. And it's called, it's a grocery store, but it's called Rock and Roll Ralphs because it was open 24-7. It was right in the middle of Hollywood. Anytime after like 11 or midnight during the 80s, you'd see more people in bands at Ralph's buying booze and, and pizzas and stuff than you would at clubs because everyone lived in an apartment around there and seven fail was across the street and the rock and roll Denny's was another block down the street. So anyways, I would go there, you know, a bunch of times a week to Ralph's just to get shop. And not that long ago, a couple of years ago, the bus, the guy, the bag boy, the guy bagging your groceries was like, would you like paper or plastic? And, and uh, he goes, he just looked at me. He was really quiet and, you know, pretty conservative, normal looking guy. And he goes, Steve Darrow? I was like, yeah. And I looked at him and he goes, it's Alan. And I looked down and he had a little name tag, you know, on his wow. screen. And I was like, oh, it is Alan. He's like, oh, what are you doing? He's like, I'm working here at Ralph's. Oh, great. Um, and then I kind of thought, okay, well, I'll probably see him all the time now because I go to Ralph's mm-hmm. numerous times a week. And, um, I kind of maybe saw him twice, like working there, and I didn't see him after that. So, well, I, I sorry. Once you uh, mentioned Shire, I couldn't, you know, get past yeah. that thought because I put it out on. I mean, it's a shot in the dark. I mean, the video I was sent was a couple of years old, and you guys hope the guy is okay. I was fortunate yeah. enough that he actually came. He was in New York, and he came in studio when I oh, interviewed really? him. So, 
So I hope he's okay. Sorry to deviate to that. That's okay because I know that the band that the, later on the bands that he was in uh, were totally different than what you know Shire or Guns Rose or anything. They, they, you know, he was actually in this band that was a a spinoff of Motorcycle Boy, or he might have been in Motorcycle Boy. They were a real big Hollywood trash rock band at the time. Like everyone worked on Melrose. No one had a motorcycle except the singer, but they were called Motorcycle Boy. Uh, they're real, real like school of Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers meets the Cramps meets the Ramones, you know, real simple three chord trash rock. But they, they, uh, he ended Alan and ended up in a band like that. And then the couple of bands that he had after that, he'd, a couple times when I'd bump into him, they'd just throw me a cassette. Here's my band. We're called, I don't remember what they're called. And they're just crazy. Like, I mean, he was a shredder. He was like, you know, into eight, like he could play like the Scorpions guys and, um, you know, rat and stuff like that. I mean, he was, you know, had Marshalls and, you know, whammy bars and perfect blonde hair and everything. <laughs> See, that's why it's so important and why I love doing this podcast is to talk to people like Alan and, and, to, and you uh, that have this this history that we may not read about all the time. No. You know? and so and, and these bands that are near misses, they, yeah. they have the same talent, they have the same drive, but it's just yeah, you're just the wrong place at the right time or what, vice yeah. versa or something. Exactly, you know? exactly. Uh, and, so I uh, guess let's go back to the right place, right time for you okay. if, if we can. So it was the you kept looking for an ad with the, in the recycler. Is that what yeah, recycler. Like? And so uh, I had called, didn't got a message, you know, just a generic answering machine back then. This is you know whatever early eighties, and um, got a call back. I think I was living with my mother in Pasadena at the time. Didn't get the call. Played phone tag with whoever was calling me, and uh, finally I you know called and. I got the call back from this guy named Jeff and uh, he's like, Hey man. Yeah. Uh, so what do you do? You play drums? What do you got? You know? And um, right off the bat, it was just like, okay, well, what do you look like? Um, do you have, do you have a pair of black pants? It's like, yeah, actually I'm wearing some right now, you know? And well, how long's your hair? You know, <laughs> what do you, what are you into? Which, you know, what's, what's your, you know, what's your bag musically and blah, blah, blah. What do you play like? And, it was, he was looking for all the, all the, you know, cause at the time, the again, password, gotta, I like how you said that the G yeah, password. the passwords and the buzzwords were like, yeah. you know, at the time, if you're either into kind of like Motley Crue and Wasp and Rat and not even Poison yet, cause Poison was just starting, but like, um, mm -hmm. some of those bands that were playing around the strip that had grown out of playing the strip and gone on to make records and, but then there was the strip bands that were of that ilk, real pretty boy, pink, a lot of pink and a lot of stripes and, you know, kind of like London and um, bands like that who later entered into the story too. But um, anyway, uh, or you, there, everyone was, you know, the people that were into that were, it was just straight up, you know, maiden and later priest and sept and, you know, uh, that kind of stuff, which is, I liked musically, but what, like I said, I wasn't really going for that, like all the way, like they were just, you know, those kind of bands. And so he was like looking for people that were a little more dialed into like kind of a, a niche, niche, you know, like 
got to be into Aerosmith. You got to be into the Dolls. You got to be into the Stones. You got to be into um, a handful of other things. Um, if you like Priest, it's okay. If you like Maiden, that's okay. You know, you like you know whatever. It's it, but you know we're we're and then uh, if you heard Hannah Rocks, I was like, yeah, I got their their you know single a couple posters. I was like, whoa, okay, <laughs> you know. And then it was like uh, they were looking for a drummer and. Uh, uh, so I what did you say like, that you played, I guess, like, cause you, did you played both at the time or you still, uh, I was playing drums all like almost exclusively at that point. Okay. Like, that's what I'd been playing. And then it wasn't until, uh, I knew how to play other stuff just uh, at home and I'd recorded with people and jammed with people playing okay. guitar, but I was, you know, a drummer, I had drum set and I was like, thought I was the shit of a drummer. I thought I was badass, And, um, I probably was for my age back then. And, you know, at this point I was just barely like 18 or 19 probably. And, um, anyway, so he said, well, yeah, I got this, you know, got this singer and, uh, you know, I live in West Hollywood singer lives in Beverly Hills and, uh, you know, we're into this, we're into that. And, uh, you know, we got some gigs coming up. If we could just find the right people, we got some, you know, record. And it was all this real, it was real, like sounded real, you know, top drawer sort of, like he had his shit together. Like these were real Hollywood people that were real okay. showbiz guys. And I was like trying to figure out like, who could that be? And I was like, uh, Oh, cause you knew were, everybody. You were trying to figure out. Yeah. I kind of knew at least, uh, you know, I knew about most of the movers and shakers and, mm. and, uh, you know, so anyway, uh, it, it was a phone tag after that. Well, turns out, you know, they didn't really live anywhere. Like they, they were just couch, you know, there was couch service. He had an answering service where he'd check in whatever, a couple times a day to get his messages. And then he'd go okay. to a phone booth or to whoever's house he was hanging out at, make phone calls, call back. And then, you know, if he happened to call back and he wasn't at someone's house or a phone booth, it was like, you'd miss him and it would be a week before. So it was uh, the days before texting. Out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this was before all that shit. I know, I know. Yeah. And um, anyway, so uh, we had figured out a time. He goes, well, I got this, you know, we've got this, this, this guys we're working with, the guitar player, and then I play guitar, and our singers, you know. Uh, he didn't say anything about, like, their, their sound. I mean, they're, they're like, he didn't say, we got this awesome singer. He sounds like, you know he's going to be the biggest thing in the world. He was just like, yeah, we got a singer, Bill, you know, and, uh, singer Bill living in, living in Beverly Hills. And I was like, okay, well, these are obviously, like I said, like it's picturing them to be like someone in rainbow or someone, like, <laughs> you know, uh, a big band like that. And, and then, um, he goes, well, when we get, when we get a rehearsal set up, uh, you know, for an audition, we'll let you know, like, uh, Cause they didn't really have a place to live and they weren't even like, they couldn't even play in the garage at their house cause they didn't have a house, you know, <laughs> so they'd have to rent a, a hourly place and then they'd have to get money to rent the hourly place. So that was, that took a whole other, you know, stretch of time for that to come through. So anyways, it was a good couple of weeks and I was like, okay, I want to check these guys out. These guys sound promising of, you know, I got a list of five calls and you know, this one sounds like definitely one I want to check out just because it's so weird. <laughs> but it sounds like it's you know it has potential and anyway so it took a really long time for that to actually happen and then one day i was actually uh 
I didn't even have a car at that point. I was borrowing my mom's car, I think, and I drove to Hollywood from Pasadena. It's half hour away, but if you weren't in Hollywood, everything was like, you know, it was kind of like if you live in New York City, anything that's past yeah. the Bridge Tunnel is Mexico. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's understood. Like sure. Mentally. So I was in Hollywood and I, I, I pulled over to a phone booth uh, and I had Jeff's number scrawled down on some eyeliner somewhere and, and uh, <laughs> pulled and I was like, okay, I'm in Hollywood. I think I should call these guys. Maybe they'll, they'll, we could get together and meet, you know? And cause I'm only here for whatever till a couple hours. I got to take the car back. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so I called and it was like, oh yeah. Oh, Hey, which, which one were you? Like he was a little bit confused. Like he probably gotten a lot of calls or a few calls. And, and I go, yeah, I'm just down the street, man. I could, I could come over. I'll probably be there in 10 minutes. He's like, oh, what, what do you look like again? How long is your hair? Uh, what, what? And he was like trying to like filter, you know, filter the, the idiots out, you know, and the, <laughs> the posers and the not cool rockers out. And, he goes, okay, well, yeah, we're here, um, I guess. Can you come over in like a half hour? And um, he told me where they lived. And uh, he goes, okay, you go on Sunset, and you'll see the Coconut Teaser and the Liquor Locker there, which is a liquor store, you know, literally on the corner, about 100 yards from their little place they live. You drive up there, and then um, for about, you know, half a block north of Sunset, you'll see this this uh, sign that's, you know, a one-way street and a sign that says, do not enter, enter. <laughs> when you see that sign, enter. And that's, we live right there. And I was like, okay, well, that's kind of fancy pants. Like, you know, these guys have a nice pad because that's like getting into Hollywood Hills. Okay. Real estate, you know, big houses. And, you know, um, I don't know if you heard of the coconut teaser. I've heard of it. Yeah. It was before it was always there. It was like this bar slash barbecue restaurant that was always right on a big corner of sunset and Laurel Canyon Boulevard and um, really prime real estate. It's like a super fancy dance club now, but it wasn't really back then. It was just basically a bar. It wasn't really known as a, a rock club yet, but that's just where they live. And so I pull up on this road and there's this little, it looked like a kind of a tool shed. <laughs> it was like the sort of garage where like from the big house that was whoever they were renting this room from lived in a big kind of house up, up the road a bit. And then this little one door and there was like this place, like literally like a place where you would have kept your bicycles or something. If you were at a nice big house or, you know, pool, pool house almost, but really small and maybe had a bathroom, I guess. And enough for like two cots, and you know, and that was it. And so, um, I pulled up in my car, and this is this door, like right on the street, like no lawn, no yard, no nothing, just this door open. And I see Jeff, Izzy, and I go, Oh, that's that guy. I'd seen him a bunch around town over the last few years. Um, okay. Just uh, driving around, I'd see him at clubs, I'd see him walking down the street, and you know, I, he'd seen me as well. And they're kind of like this weird little head turn. Like no one ever said anything cause it wasn't cool, but <laughs> like that guy looks weird. He looks, he looks wrong. He looks really cool, but he's in there always in this kind of wrong place. And he has his pink leather jacket and his, you know, Nikki six hair. And, uh, but he'd be like in some kind of nice part of town with a, you know, like 
places where those people wouldn't hang out. <laughs> I even saw him at a Judas Priest concert at Long Beach Arena once. Like okay. this huge crowd of thousands of people, like point of entry tour or something like that. You know, all these people spilling out. And the one person that I just caught his eye, my eye was Izzy, you know, out of these millions of people. And um, so anyway, I was like, that's that guy. Okay. Now it's all making sense. I wonder who this singer is. And um, so he's like, oh, hey. Yeah, come on in. And their room wasn't much bigger than the car I was in. <laughs> and it was just him. And there was somebody else there that I don't remember who it was. It wasn't someone in the band. It was just a friend, maybe okay. a friendship. And um, it's like, hey, you know, quiet, soft-spoken Izzy. And um, so, uh, well, yeah, hey, what are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Do you got any tapes, you know? And um, I'll play some stuff that we, we've done, we've been working on, just they had these little tapes and ghetto blaster, you know, like boombox mm-hmm. cassette, you know, a portable cassette player and just with built in mic, he'd sit there and put the guitar amp two feet away and the singer would get close and, you know, try to record little ideas. And so they just kind of had that. And he sort of played me some ideas and it was literally just him and Axel, like cold, hard cash, and, you know, shadow of your love and stuff like that. And then they had done, that demo with Chris Weber before that, which had, uh, you know, Johnny Christ and those guys on it at mystic studios. So it was like, he goes, yeah, this is the stuff we've been doing. This was like, you know, a little while ago, it's kind of, we're kind of not, it's an idea that you could tell what we're up to, but we're sort of going in a different direction than that, you know? And, um, there's still no Axel. And then out of the bathroom, which was like just, you know, 10 feet away, the other side of the house, the door opens and this guy comes out, you know, with like a rock, you know, three quarter length rock jersey on that was like shredded and tied back together and real quiet. And like, hey, how's it going? You know, and he wasn't like, uh, you know, wasn't, he was just very quiet and, and reserved. And as he was doing all the talking and all the action and stuff, and, uh, it's like, hey. Okay. And, um, listening to the stuff and going, yeah, okay, this is pretty cool. I like this. This is way more, this is way like, it was not what I was expecting. It was, it was cooler, you know? It, it sounds like more. nothing was what you were expecting. No, oh, and like the way that they're raw, their, their tapes, their demos on the boombox were just so raw. I mean, it was more punk rock than any of the shit that I'd been hearing, but with Axel singing. So it was like, you know. What did you like, think of his voice at, the, well, at that time? I listened and I was like, damn. Cause it was all he had, like all he used anyways, was like one section of his range at that mm. point. It was just mm. all, all the time. It was just on 11 all the time. There was no Mr. Brownstone voice or ballad mm. voice, or it was just, you know, scream. And I was like, this is, I go this so after about the third song, I looked over to him. He still wasn't really saying much, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I go, do you like Nazareth by any chance? Uh, and he looked at me and kind of like, goes, yeah. I like <laughs> and I was like, right on. That's awesome. Cause no one really sings like that, you know, like anymore. Like at that point there weren't, you know, it was just the real, like kind of David Lee Roth voice or like, you know, ah, you know, operatic metal voice, mm. and nothing much in between. And uh, so I was like, yeah, well, shit, this is crazy. This is, this is pretty, this is cool. Looking. Uh, 
He says, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we hung out and we, we just shot the shit and it was kind of comfortable. Like we got along, I think. And, um, we hung out and then I had to go and, uh, cause yeah, we'll be in touch. We'll be in touch. Um, you know, we got this going on. We got this going on. We just got to find the right people. We got to find the right people. We just, you know, not really happy with the situation we got now. I don't even know how long they stayed in that room that they were renting, but, um, probably by the next time that I talked to them, they were already moved out. <laughs> maybe a little after that. But so anyways, I started getting these more frequent calls from Izzy. Like sometimes before I'd wake up, sometimes in the middle of the night. Okay. And, um, uh, my mom got a little bit perturbed. Like, <laughs> Cause I lived in the garage behind the house and she'd have to come out and get me and blah, blah, blah. Um, telephone, you know, 10 minutes later I'd come in. Hello. It's like, Hey, uh, yeah. So can you get out here? Um, uh, we got this, you know, we got this, uh, if we can rehearse and get these songs down, we can I get this gig opening for a friend of mine's band. And, and that didn't happen. And then there was this crazy, he had a friend, he always had a, a scheme. He always had a plan. He always had things going on, stuff going on. Okay. Even back then. And, uh, there was somebody in Finland that had some sort of Hanoi rocks connection like I didn't even know what the connection was. If he just maybe knew them or was from Finland, so it was enough of a connection. Okay. okay. But he was like a like a guy that was trying to get you know like a promoter type guy. Mm-hmm. Like there's always those guys that are like, yeah, man, get your shit together and come on over here, and I can I can make sure you have like the best gigs and you know. And so Izzy, had, I guess, been carrying on these late night conversations with this guy, you know, on the phone, like talking to this guy. I forget his name. He had a funny name, and uh, was like we got to do this, man. We got to get, just get shit together and get a band together and just fucking go over there. They'll pay for it. And they'll, you know, be on to go to Finland. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, okay, sure. And, um, and so anyways, they had finally gotten to the point where they rented a, a room for to a audition rehearsal type thing. Right. You know, our hourly rehearsal place down, not it was kind of far out of town in a way because it was cheaper and uh so i went and um i think they had some girl maybe a girlfriend that drove one car and i went with my mom's car with my drum loaded it. <laughs> i love that by the way like it was a toyota like sedan too it wasn't like an suv or a station wagon. <laughs> so i had mostly drums in the back seat and a few in the front seat and a couple of stands here and there and I went went to their place and picked up, I think Axel rode with me and uh, with a drum on his lap after he got in, you know, <laughs> in the front seat. And Izzy had his little one amp that he had and a guitar and the girl. And then we took off down to the studio. And um, remember, we stopped at a 7-Eleven on the way because it was like probably a 15-minute drive. And Axel got a cup of coffee to go and i got one too and we're driving and was like okay let's go to studio now we stopped and we've got our shit you know beer and coffee and um you know i put the gas on at a stop sign and he like spilled some coffee on his lap and he just went like i was like are you okay he's like yeah oh coffee on my lap you know that feeling i was like okay well you'll get over it (laughs) so he was already kind of like on edge, you know? So we got to the studio set up and, um, big mirror on, you know, it was almost like a dance ballet rehearsal studio. Like in a way they had, 
a big full length mirror. So they're doing their thing in the mirror. And I was like sitting on my drums and is he just had, it was just, so it was just us three really. Mm-hmm. And uh, the girl was there just kind of waiting for it to be over so he could <laughs> drive, drive him home. And uh, so we jammed and Axel sang and there was a piano in there and Axel played like a little bit of piano. I was, wow. This like, this guy's got some weird, you know, talent. And it turns out in the long run, after the the thing, you know, I call them a couple of days later. So when are we going to jam again? It's like they, the, you know, the short end of the story is they didn't like the way I played drums, even okay. though I'd been playing longer than they had been playing. They just was not right. The style wasn't right. I was, okay. more, you know, a crazy sort of 70s style drumming. And they were just looking for somebody really straightforward. And at the time, most of the drummers in town were aspiring to be like Tommy Lee and stuff like that, you know, very flashy and very animated and lots of fills and lots of stuff. And they were just in Izzy's mind anyway, they're really looking for something different than that. Okay. Really straightforward, really just almost Ramones simplicity, but more hard rock version like ACDC, mm-hmm. which wasn't what I was doing it all so anyways they're like yeah uh we've got another couple drummers we want to try out before making the decisions and uh blah 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 just kind of blowing me off basically he goes let's come out and hang out and stuff and we'll you know we'll go see blah 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 show we'll hang out we'll go to the bar or whatever but uh we got we got some other guys we want to try out first and then if worst comes to worst we can use our old guy uh to play drums for the shows we got coming up you know and so i was like oh that was kind of a disappointment so I kind of was still searching for bands and stayed in touch with them, called them every once in a while and got, you know, got the answer machines and then I'd find out where Bill was and try to call him and leave messages with his girlfriend that he was living with and stuff like that. And um, then I had found this other band that uh, was actually uh, super like looking back on it was like quintessential hair metal band. Um, they were like a big club. They were called Carrie doll. They were big in the, basically big in LA okay. in the club scene. And they were able to headline the Troubadour and headline these clubs like that. And they had a lot of people and they had a big show. They had f- flash bombs and uh, pyro and the singer came out in a big pink coffin, you know, <laughs> and uh, they had blood, you know, it was like real wasp kiss Motley crew. Uh, they presented it as being like a cross between Alice Cooper and New York Dolls meets, you know, Too Fast for Love, but it was just basically a kiss show. Mm. And um, they were looking for uh, they were looking for a drummer and a bass player as well. And I, I called them up and I said, I heard of you guys. I haven't seen you, but I've heard of you. I've seen your ads all the time. And I know you have a record out. And he goes, well, we just found a really good drummer, but um, you play bass. And I go, well, I can. I can give it a try. He's like, well, come on down. Like, I don't even care, you know, <laughs> um, you, you know, we said that sort of the, you know, some of our influences were the same and stuff too. And, uh, so that it was really odd. It, they were in from really the suburbs, like down in towards uh, long beach. And, um, they rehearsed in the parking lot of this. It was so not Hollywood. So not hair metal. It was like the funniest weird juxtaposition. It was like, they were literally rehearsed in like an Airstream trailer, you know, like, <laughs> Like you'd go on vacation with <laughs> still bigger than Axel and Izzy's rented room, but it was not much bigger. 
And it was in the parking lot, the back parking lot behind this warehouse where it was out in a field. I mean, it was just really weird. Yet there were this big, glamorous, colorful, you know, Hollywood hair metal band. And that's just where they, they revert. <laughs> yeah. That's how he went about doing his band and stuff. So uh, I ended up playing bass for them because I knew how to play enough and I could wear enough, you know, interesting clothes and jump around enough to where I fit, you know. And I mean, so if Sid Vicious was, could play bass, and you could play bass. Exactly. <laughs> and I mean, Nikki Six was barely playing bass in the days when I saw them and was just enamored with like how great they were. But he was just running around setting shit on fire and hitting a note every once in a while and letting everyone else do the work. And so I was kind of like, well, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> and especially coming from punk rock where it was about playing simple anyways. Mm. And, um, so by that time he had like a lot of gigs booked and we were playing around quite a bit and uh, playing. It was funny because at the time it was just like, well, this is okay. This So that was like officially my entry into like that Hollywood metal scene okay. as far as playing in a band. Like I'd been going to shows and stuff, but like as far as being in one of those bands and being on the bill with, you know, I mean, we played with like leather wolf open for us. And like, we played a show once with Slayer open for us and Lizzie Borden. Oh, wow. We were the headliners and uh, wow. you know, London and Ruby slippers and all these kind of real, glammy uh hollywood bands and slayer was uh was like that no they weren't at all but um we had got carry doll had gotten sort of lumped in with lizzie i don't know if you're familiar with lizzie borden but they were around and they were you know long around before even carry doll was i think as far as being a band they had records out and stuff but they were like they sounded like maiden early maiden with double guitars and but they dressed really leathery and the singer had this crazy, like uh, he'd do a lot of horror movie stuff with blood and mannequins and um, you know, Alice Cooper stick and wasp stick theatrics more. Yeah. More in a, in a like eighties metal way. And then Slayer was that way because their image, they had just gotten into like wearing the really long spikes and (laughs) they just discovered venom and pretty much, uh, retooled their sound to be just like venom and okay uh and so they had they did things in if you look at the old ads from the la trade papers you know that would have upcoming ads for club shows and stuff there was always slayer would always have like blood dripping from their mouth and the girl like a half naked girl in leather with her throat slit you know like that kind of stuff so wholesome family fun yeah i mean it was like (laughs) Way more cheesy than you'd expect Slayer ever to be, but at the same time, it was you know extreme back then. Sure, Harry Dahl sort of fell into that just just purely visually and theatrically, musically. It was like, you know, it was like having White Snake open for Slayer. It just made no sense. <laughs> right, right. That's how I was. But, so, anyways, watch. we played pretty good clubs, and and um, and Carrie, the singer, and the guitar player, who was a girl. Right, Carrie had pretty much got a whole new band when, it, when when I joined, and they had a girl guitar player, which was very cutting edge at that time yeah. for a metal band. Yeah, uh, it was okay in punk bands and weirdo bands and stuff, but it was like, and she could shred. She was really good. She was in a punk band before, but she was really into like shredding. And um, 
and Carrie, it was real effeminate anyways, you know, so having a girl was even more perfect. You know, it was like, you can't get any more glam than actually having a real girl. <laughs> there you go. And, um, she can help her with the makeup really at the time. And, and, uh, you know, Vixen had sort of maybe just started to be on people's radar and stuff like that. And, uh, so anyways, uh, Carrie and, and the guitar player, they knew about Izzy a little, they, they knew about, and they made friends with him just on a scene, you know, and, uh, they knew Axel maybe. And, and um, they knew, they were aware that they existed and they're like, Oh, those guys are cool. They look really cool. And they, they come to our shows sometimes and we see them out and invite them to one of the shows, you know? And so I'd invite them to the show and sometimes they'd come, sometimes they wouldn't, you know, Axel and Izzy. And, but did they know like now that you played bass, were they looking for a bass player? Well, that's the funny thing. I think that I told him, but whether or not it registered or not, I don't know because okay. like I said, they were already couch surfing in three or four different places since I had initially met with them and were, uh, had a little few, a few gigs had popped up that they'd done like real, like, you know, small, like the orphanage and stuff like that, you know? And, and, um, so what happened is uh, there was a couple times when um, Carrie Dahl would play like a, a high up on the bill, either it's headlining or co-headlining show and Rose or, you know, w- would actually be like the opening act. Um, we did one show with them at uh, Madame Long's West, which uh, is in Santa Monica. And it was, there's two Madame Wongs. You've probably seen the, the gigs, the early gigs listed. There was one yeah. that was literally today's date, June 28th, 1984. That was at the other Madame Wongs in Chinatown near downtown. Oh. Mm. But there was a bigger Madame Wongs in Santa Monica. And it had two, uh, two levels, like a big room upstairs. And then downstairs, they had another bar and another restaurant, a smaller stage. And of course, the more popular bands would play upstairs in the big stage. And then, um, the local kind of bands would play downstairs, but you could go to both. You could see both bands. If you paid to get in, you could choose wherever you wanted to see. That's cool. So for some odd reason, and we didn't know about any of this at the time. I didn't, but, uh, Carrie had gotten this gig as a headliner at Mount Wong's West. And the opening band was this new band that Kim Fowley was bringing out from Pennsylvania called Poison. And they were just visiting LA for like a week and they had like a couple gigs and Kim Fowley was courting them around town, trying to get hype poison into letting him produce them and write songs. Oh, I did kiss. I did Alice Cooper. I did the runaways. I did all this stuff, you know, and uh, you need me. And, and, uh, and we didn't know about poison. We just, uh, Carrie might've heard of them or something like that, but there were just these kind of guys from back East and then uh, this other band, forget what they're called. They were another kind of local, real straightforward, almost journey type of hard rock band. And then downstairs was Rose playing in the, in the, the small, cheap room. Was Rose and this band called Pyrus, okay. which was Tracy Guns' first band. Right. And another band, which I forget, but there was, if I look at the list, I'll remember. They had some sort of connection in the whole soap opera. Um so that was the first time I met Tracy Guns. He okay. came into the dressing room and we were putting on a like, hair metal outfit. And he comes in in his lace, white lace suit. And he's like, Does anybody have a match? I gotta, I gotta light up my, uh, my eyebrow pencil. Uh, I need <laughs> and he was just like, whoa, who is this guy? Uh, and I was like, I, I ran down and saw, um, 
you know, Izzy and Bill's band because it was like, these guys are kind of, and I ended up hanging around with them in their dressing room more than the band that I was in, you know, (laughs) uh, my now wife, who was not even my girlfriend at the time came to the show. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. She came to the show with her, you know, current, uh, significant other back then. And because I invited him, I said, yeah, come see my band. You know, I know you like the dolls and I like this kind of stuff. So you might like these guys. And, um, they were sort of in the death rock scene, but they were kind of disenfranchised and they were looking for, always looking for more of a rock and roll outlet and stuff. So uh, I go, she had the hugest hair. She was blonde, but she had like the biggest, like those pictures <laughs> you've seen of Sebastian Bach when he was in, like, <laughs> Madame X, you know, like, her hair looked like that. And I was like, you got to, can you help me with my hair? <laughs> she came in our dressing room, which was the Hollywood Rose dressing room. Okay. And their girlfriends were like, excuse me, you know, like, who is this? And, and I was like, yeah, just, just, you know, I got to go on stage upstairs in like a half hour. She's just helping me out. It's like, okay. So anyways, we watched them play and watched Pyrus a little bit. And then I'd kind of go back up downstairs, checking, checking things out, you know, with the bands and saw Poison and, for a second I saw them backstage and they were really different looking too at that point. So anyways, just long story short, which is not that short, but <laughs> you know, in carried all days, we, we crossed paths with all those bands, like before they were really, you know, and famous. it's just bananas that you could see them in the same venue. Like you yeah. just go upstairs and downstairs. It and- happened a lot. Uh, actually like you just have to really, do your research and look at the old club listings and stuff and, uh, you know, and see, wow, really? And there was a few clubs that had like, you know, the upstairs and downstairs are two rooms. And then a couple of other clubs that would just be like, they just put whoever on a bill with whoever <laughs> it was really eclectic, you know? And, um, so that was where I kind of, you know, met Tracy for the first time and was really sure where he was coming from, but I knew that he was buddies with those guys. He's like, Hey, you know, Bill and stuff. And I was like, yeah. And, um, so again, I kind of just, uh, as a bro, I was more hanging out with those guys more, even when I wasn't playing, I'd like, if I go out to a show, I'd go out to a show and see if they wanted to go or give them a ride or whatever. More you so really connected with them. It seems, yeah. you know, and then it's sort of like they had ended up, so we were bros, friends, whatever. And uh, we'd see each other maybe once, twice a month, you know, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on where they were. And they had actually started playing some gigs, some of the, the you know, with uh, Weber and, um, you know, Johnny Christ and whichever bass player. And I'd go and see them just to support them, you know, like we'd go to the Troubadour. they lucky enough to get a show, like a Troubadour cafe to grand or something and and on a weeknight real early and there'd be really hardly anybody there you know and uh the me and axel had this thing where (laughs) even not on stage like i'd have a drink you know like cocktail and i'd take an ice cube throw it out you know (laughs) but he'd be like what he'd he'd get all into it he'd like throw something back at me you know like come on come on no, it's not like violent, just like, you know, like a fun kind of angst, you know. Kind like of a brotherly punky. thing, it sounds like. like just like, he brought in the punky sort of energy to their show, you know. And as he was looking cool, you know, striking poses and Weber was shredding away. And um, But Axel was always about running around back and forth and 
you know, doing his thing if he could, if he was allowed to, you know. And then so that went on. And then they came to see me when I played with Carrie Doll at the other Madame Wong's in Chinatown. They came. And uh, it was Izzy and Bill. And I'm not sure who else came with them. Uh, and we were playing, you know, it was like a pretty full house. And we were playing headlining. I think it was Leatherwolf, actually. And um, so anyways, after the show, after, you know, I'd kind of like cleaned up some of the sweat and gotten our equipment off the stage. And I was just kind of not ready to go home yet, but I was just sort of hanging around on the stairs and I saw Izzy finally, you know, and he was, he'd been downstairs chatting to some chicks, you know, and like he came up the stairs and I was like, Oh, Hey, what'd you think? He's like, Oh, that's crazy, man. I guess. So I heard, you know, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago or something, Bill told me you had a show booked on the whatever date, you know, uh, I go, that's cool. He's like, what are you talking about? I go, well, who's playing it? He was like, what are you talking about? You're playing at it. And I'm like, I am. Like, is carried all like on the same gig? They didn't tell me about that, you know. And he goes, No, you're playing bass. I go, I am. He's like, Yeah, we need a bass player. You're perfect. And like, that's back to your question of you know, 20 minutes ago. Like, did they know you were playing bass? It's like they kind of didn't. But once they were like, came and saw the band, they were like, He can play bass as good as anybody, you know. Yeah, you weren't the right style for drumming, but you were for bass. Yeah. And I wasn't the right style even for Carrie Doll necessarily. And, uh, but you know, they, they were smart enough to connect the dots and whatever. So I go, Oh, okay. Well, I could be in both bands. It's no biggie. You know, I'm all for it. Cause I'd been like gone, like almost a year of not playing with anybody. And I'd moved back to my dad's for a while and it was just like itching to, to play. You were hungry. Yeah. Yeah. Literally and, uh, probably. So, we uh, did that and I don't even remember the gig really, but uh, that's where things get convoluted Okay, <laughs> <laughs> only because of, you know, the fact that, you know, Izzy was driving the bus back then and he was booking the gigs and he was booking the rehearsals and he was getting calling shots of who was going to be in the band and not. And then by the time that first gig actually happened, he was out of the picture. So it was just this really short, maybe month, three weeks, two weeks of like, he was there. And then it was like, where's Izzy? You know, <laughs> can we do a pause real quick? I got to pee. Oh, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> so. Yeah. No worries about the break. I, I've had to take pee breaks. Don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. And you know what? Cause uh, huge glass of Jack Daniels that I'm downing in the middle of the day. Oh, nice. Not I got really. my, my thermos, my, my Ninja Turtles thermos of water. <laughs> Are you down with that Turtles thing? I know. I could have done a Ninja Turtles podcast, but no, it's a GNR podcast. And I didn't expect to, you know. There's got to be a in somewhere. It, oh, there is. <laughs> oh, there is. There, There's rumors of Axel being late because he was watching uh, Ninja Turtles 2. Yeah. One just, of the many times he was know, late. I don't, I don't know. I want to believe that. I don't know if that's, that's true. But no, this, before we get back into it, you know, I know I'm keeping you here for a while. Thank you. I'm just like, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging on every word because it's another side of the story that we haven't. No, it's fine. Heard. That's why, you know, if you got, if you got more, if you want to steer me in a different direction, just let me know. No, it's good. I was just making sure because my cat didn't press any buttons. I know yeah. you have some cats and your cats are all fat. You guys are, you yeah, guys are they're, they're, he's going to sleep until it, you know, midnight. <laughs> I got I start you. To wake up and then it'll, you know, but so yeah, what, people think that like we sleep until three in Hollywood and we drink Jack Daniels all day. It's just iced tea. And then I haven't, <laughs> I, haven't I stopped drinking when I was about 21. 
Oh, wow. But kind of the second it became legal for me to drink, I stopped. Oh, wow. But, Good for you. Good for you. Yeah, I don't, I don't drink either, but not. So that kind of made it difficult in the um, rock world, too. Like, let's go out and have a couple of beers and get all fucked up. And you're like, well, no. I'll, well, go I, I'll watch you. <laughs> I got to imagine, especially with Izzy, you know, yeah. with he, he had for, so like when that, maybe that's part of the where's Izzy. So that's where we, I guess, kind of left off. Yeah. At so that time, happened, it was Rose. Like, I guess, where, where's Hollywood? It was, Rose? you know, it was re- again, too. It was, it was always a bit of a blurry line, at least in everyone's timeline, is when it was Rose, when it was Hollywood Rose. It kind of went back and forth a few times. Uh, but definitely when, before I was playing with them, they were called Rose, just straight mm-hmm. up Rose. And um, I think, I know Axel had mentioned to me, he was still Bill. And he goes, yeah, we've got, we got a handful of different names kicking around that we want to, you know, play with. Like Rose is, you know, that's cool. But, you know, I call myself, that's kind of like the last name I use sometimes, but I wanted to call the band um, AXL. I was like, oh, what does that stand for? Because um, in the punk world, there's all these UXA and GBH and all these, like, you know, they always had these gnarly political, like, initials for something, and MOD and SOD. It was like, I go, what, is X? what does that stand for? And he goes, Axel. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. Like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> and then uh, that's probably when I went, well, that's pretty tough. It's not, like, a super glammy name. It's, you know. Uh, go for it because he was like always pushing for like a tougher street you know metal hard rock image and Izzy was hanging on to the the other part of it and uh, but that's probably maybe I've read that you're the guy that convinced Axel to call himself Axel and I don't really remember doing that but I also pretty much figure that that's something that I would have done. So mm. it probably happened right then <laughs> at that point, if it did, you know, I'll go, why don't you just call yourself Axel? Cause you live, you know, you just, you just live and breathe Axel, you know, the band Axel that never was called Axel. And so I, you know, um, once they were playing with the name Hollywood Rose, because a, they were all, you know, wanted to be associated with living in Hollywood and it was more like New York Dolls, more like Hanoi Rocks, HR, HR, get it? And um, Got it. Uh, a lot of bands were doing that, like the Something City, something, you know. And so it sounded a little bit more everything. It sounded kind of, Rose was kind of like the soft side and Hollywood was like, you know, the kind of glamorous, glitzy side and seedy side at the same time. So I really can't tell you exactly what, happened as far as Izzy not being around uh other than everything to my knowledge he was around he organized the rehearsal he'd um you know they had met Slash and I had met Slash just on the street in front of Gazari's one night Mm. and they were all introduced and Steve was there but it was uh there was talk of we got these guys that Axel's been you know talking to and drummer is really good he's double bass you know uh long blonde hair and this guy <clears throat> Saul plays guitar he played just like Joe Perry and uh we're talks you know talks about checking checking them out like audition 
see how it works. You know, um, you should come play bass. Like, okay, just tell me, you know, I did, had nothing to do with really like, they were bantering back and forth over a period of a few months or whatever. I didn't know about road crew then, you know, I didn't know about any of that stuff. And um, so anyways, I guess at some point they had gotten together, just maybe Slash and Izzy or Slash and Bill had gotten together and traded riffs, traded lyrics and stuff like that. And uh, traded tapes maybe and Slash learned their the songs that they had going like the simpler, you know, anything goes and stuff like that from those days. And then, um, slash was slowly bringing in his slower, more slashy complex, more complex riffs, you know, and, um, they were trying to, you know, make it, make it meld somehow. So anyways, we go to the rehearsal. It was everybody. It was me, Izzy, slash Steve, Axel, it, programmer studios which is over across the street from hollywood high and it was the cheapest place in town <laughs> and um so we did the rehearsal and then they go okay let's get together in like either next week you know or a week after and by that rehearsal there was no izzy right so somehow and and you gotta understand everyone's gotta understand in the gnr world back then that was really not uncommon like even once they became a band as far as i know like the appetite lineup they were like people were dropping out and coming back and dropping out you know a lot like temporarily mm. someone would get in a fight someone's feeling was get hurt someone would just go fuck this shit i'm out of here and then a week later they'd all be like okay so let's go you know and so in the early days it was like that too and don't really know who's who where it stemmed from you know and we all know that izzy had disappearance issues you know which i didn't know about other than the fact that sometimes i wouldn't hear from him for a couple of weeks because he didn't have a phone and you know, <laughs> didn't have a place to live so i just figured it was that you know and um so anyways it, by the the next rehearsal um it was just steve and me and slash and axel and um he says, yeah, we're just going to give this a try, the one guitar thing. You know, I, I got these other guys in mind maybe for playing guitar if we need a second, you know, guy. But the Slash guys, like, he could play circles around, you know, all kinds of people. And I think we could do it with just one guitar. I mean, shit, Motley Crue's just got one guitar player. <laughs> right. Van Halen just got one guitar player. And Slash really was, like, back then, he was, like, a, a bit different. Like, he was, you know, he had the BC Rich and the – tremolo bar and he was like more in the uh 80s metal style still had his thing coming through the aerosmith stuff and all that but he was able to sort of you know shred with the the rest of them and uh that's another thing like i saw i watched a bit of your youtube thing the other day with roy arbison jr okay sure sure yeah and I, I know he kind of went off on this Marshall amps and guitar sound and thing, which yeah. I totally like latched onto. And you're probably going to go, oh, no, I don't know what he's talking about, but. Um, there are people that do. I wish I. There are people I, that do. And I was fascinated because yeah. that's the kind of, you know, trivia that I'm fascinated by. And I didn't know that about Roy. I knew it about 
you know, the Marshalls and the Roy Orbison. I knew about other people and other guitars and other amps and stuff like that. But, uh, and then he, he went and grabbed his silver Jubilee Marshall and said, this is the slash amp, you know? Right. Well, yeah. it kind of is for a time. Uh, and it kind of isn't, but it, and he's talking about here, you know, walking by someplace and hearing a queen song coming over the speakers somewhere and, uh, having be like a light bulb moment, you know, um, I was like that sound, that tone, that weird, you know, nasally sharp singing lead tone that, you know, you associate with slash, but queen had it all these years before, you know, and, hmm. and it's like, yeah. And, and so did a few other people like two words that aren't Brian May, Mick Ronson. Okay. So Joe Orbison, not cutting him down or anything, but Mick Ronson. And there's a Bowie connection with Slash. And, All right. You know, and he was doing that thing, you know, a couple of years before Queen was even formed. And uh, as well as a couple other guys, but it's a combination of their amps and their tone settings and the another two words, cocked, wah, which isn't, okay. isn't erotic code for anything. It's just <laughs> has to do with having a wah-wah pedal and keeping it in one spot instead of that classic wah-wah-wah. You keep it about halfway and it gives you this, huh. you know, and which slash, you know, that classic November rain kind of sound is similar to the classic, you know, Ziggy Stardust kind of sound. And, um, Cronson was probably trying to cop Jeff Beck's weird tone, you know, from the Yardbirds days. And so it goes back, you know, farther than that, but, uh, Anyway, so Slash at that point was also super into Michael Shanker. Okay. Um, well, I was like, wow, oh, okay. It has, you know, UFO and Shanker was just starting to go solo then. And it didn't really, like, to have that kind of a band, like what Shanker was doing, wasn't really in the in the same trajectory as, like, a Hanoi Rocks type of band or an Aerosmith. It was more, you know, but Slash still had that ability to do that kind of thing and um he was doing a lot of stuff that was was more similar to that in the early days and then slowly it sort of it sort of you know simplified into the were you able to connect with him as easily maybe on a personal level as you seem to have uh with axel and izzy or bill yes and and Jeff? No. yeah yeah yes and no personality wise for sure and, and musically because uh he knew more about uh building a song and building riffs and building melodies and choruses and stuff. And I think, I think Axel was actually sort of like at the same time too. Cause I think he had a lot of stuff brewing that he wasn't really able to get out. Because like, Axel's, you know, he's older than all of us a little bit and um, not much, but you know, enough to where being in Indiana and Midwest, I mean, he was seriously growing up with those Elton John and those meatloaf and those, Billy Joel and, and, you know, those really classic Midwestern, not metal, but hard rock, you know, overproduced epic records, you know, and even the later Alice Cooper, like when he was working with Bernie Toppin and stuff like, you know, the late seventies, Alice Cooper, like, you know, from the inside and stuff like that, they had this really weird epic kind of, songs with a lot of parts and they were really super produced and super FM radio, but they, they weren't just kick-ass three chord fast rock songs, you know? And so I think, and Thin Lizzy too, he was a huge Thin Lizzy fan. 
Were you hearing any of that? I guess early on, obviously with the you know you were talking about Axel and his one, he only knew how to control that one octave. Yeah. Everything was hard, but it was released when they had the the box set come out. the The nine minute piano version of Remember Rain and oh, yeah. and Don't Cry was you know written yeah. well before the illusion. So did you get to oh, hear yeah. any of that early stuff? I did. Um, well, I mean, I heard him play piano, and I didn't. I heard him sort of kind of mimic like i i wasn't aware that he was that well-rounded i knew he, he had it in it, definitely and he had it in here you know i just didn't know that he could have that kind of broad range and uh i heard him mimic like old blues singers and stuff playing piano you know and so i knew he had that like and his talking his speaking voice is very gruff and and low it's not you know he's not it's, screaming it's like different that. yeah yeah. And so, and he was, he, him and Slash both are super, uh, you know, low key, soft spoken when they, unless they're pissed, I guess, or really want to scream, but they're both really breathy and both really, you know, and um, to hear Axel, you know, speak and be kind of calm and then like go out there, and you're like, well, okay. And then completely turn red his face and then go back to being like, hey, Sounds like Axel was just acting like my cat who was just clawing at the cat. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It was like the cat, like the crazy kitten. It was just like, come on, come on, come on, come on. And then he'd be asleep, you know? (laughs) um, Izzy, on the other hand, was pretty much the same, I think, more or less, same keel most of the time. Slash, once I got to know his personality, um, was you could tell he was like he wanted to get shit done too like he was a mover and shaker but he was also from california so he's kind of laid back and lazy you know too a little bit and um and then adler was just <laughs> adler you know he was that yeah come on, yeah everything was groovy everything was great he was on a party and played drums he was living in his car at that point he wasn't even living like in a small room he was living in a pacer <laughs> Hey, you know what the pacer is? Uh, I've heard of it. <laughs> Google it. If you're anywhere over like, you know, 50 years old, GMC made these really bizarre, stupid cars in like the mid 70s that were just ugly as hell. And pacer was just like kind of like cross between a Pinto and a Volkswagen. It was just <laughs> fat but short, weird car. And, you know, I know Pinto's the standard for terrible cars. Yeah. And like, uh, if you were, it was small enough to be like a compact car, but uh, big enough to load your whole drum set into. Would you rather uh, have that, or would you rather have your mom's car? I guess that's. I would have, you know, I would have made more sense as a working drummer to have the Pacer. Okay. <laughs> but okay, in the enough. early '80s, a Pacer <laughs> probably was like you know 180 bucks out of the recycler. Oh wow! Okay. The Toyota was maybe a grand, you know. So. So I guess how. Uh, ha- how much? How often did you play? Because it's it's you it's one person removed from what would be yeah. Guns N' Roses. Yeah. Like so, how often did you? How many times did you get to play with Axel um, slash? Like, not that, that many. Looking back on it, it seemed like a bunch. But again, it was all spread out, and it would be like kind of like two or three gigs in a month, and then like nothing for a long time, and then another batch, and then nothing, and then it, you know, so. It's probably half a dozen shows all together, but they can never just, get going. Like it that. sure seems like more to me <laughs> <laughs> because of the, just all the, 
all the soap opera of being involved in it and the phone calls. The, and the map that. getting there and then the, the, yeah. the path afterwards. So I guess, how did you exit? Um, that's a mystery too. Uh, okay. Uh, the, the best way to describe it is I didn't quit and I wasn't fired. <laughs> it was just sort of like this odd thing where they kind of just got somebody else without telling me for a gig uh, that I booked. I booked this gig. And so this is going back to the poison thing again. Okay. Poison, it, you know, in the interim of when I was in Carrie Doll and say in 83 or whatever, I'm playing and those bands all opening Slayer and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So probably fast forward a year, year and a half, I'd been playing with Hollywood Rose. And since then, Poison had moved to LA and said, fuck it, we're going to be an LA band. They weren't working with the Kim Fowley. They were just being Poison, being a band on the street. And they got CC DeVille. And eventually, uh, they had a different guy before. And Slash were, tried out. I yeah. And, yeah. And um, the because they kind of, it was weird because when, once they came to LA, they sort of just dove head, like they had that that East Coast, like, come on, let's get shit going. Yeah, the New York thing. Were yeah. Literally out there, flyering every night, meeting. They're nice as shit to everybody. I mean, mm. they were great guys, even to me. And they probably wouldn't remember me now, but they, hey man, how's it going? All right, <laughs> you know. And they were just making friends with everybody, flyering every show. Um, you know, going and seeing other everyone else's band, and and uh, they were much more in the, the pretty boy glam thing, and they were letting everybody know, you know that they were really meant business in that world. So anyways, Poison was sort of becoming more like, a, you know, like a band that was moving up. And so uh, a guy that was a friend of a friend was booking a, a night or two at the Troubadour, like one night a week or two nights a week. And uh, I had called him trying to, to hustle gigs for my band, which was Hollywood Rose at the time, you know, trying to help out instead of just having it be a Z or Axel getting the gigs, you know, cause I had some different connections and stuff. Sure. Uh, not necessarily in that world, but I was using the ones that I did have, you know, if it was like in the Jackson Brown world or something, it would have been all over with, but I, <laughs> you, no one was doing that, <laughs> you know, but um, you were trying, you were pulling. Uh, yeah. Just help it out. And uh, so I booked this gig and he goes, I got this band poison. And I go, Oh yeah, I know those guys. Goes, oh, cool. I get your band to, to play first or second on their show. It's Tuesday in August, blah, blah, blah. And um, so that show was in that, you know, presented it to the guys and they're like, right on, you know, because we got these other shows like uh, earlier in the summer and stuff like that. And then so anyways, long story short, it was like, I kind of just, this ba- this date was approaching and I kind of wasn't hearing from them and getting the phone calls and stuff. And um, I had uh gotten rid of like some of my bass gear and I didn't have a full setup all the time. So that was like, you know, kind of getting on their nerves. Like, you, know, you don't have an amp. We have to always have to borrow something or rent something. And, and so I showed up one day at the, uh, where they're rehearsing, you know, in my van, I had gotten a car, my own car by then <laughs> for Dodge van. And, uh, I showed up at the rehearsal place that they were rehearsing at, was a different place, the Shamrock, where they actually had some of the early parties you may, might have seen them, the flyers for, sort of after hours parties. And um, showed up there and there's nobody there but but uh, Steve. 
He's like, hey, bro, what's going on? And I was like, oh, yeah, where's everybody? Oh, they'll be here later, you know. It's like, so, um, well, oh, you guys, what's going on for that gig? I mean, you think we're going to do it or we're going to have to just call the guy and cancel it? He's like, no, no, well, we, we've been working with this other guy. And I was like, oh, okay. It wasn't like bad. It was just sort of like, hey, bro, okay, well, take it easy. And um, come back in an hour, you know, Slash will be here or whatever. And I, I didn't go back. And, and then I actually went to this show with the Troubadour in August, like I just was in town and I bought by and was going to go see Poison and see what happened. And their name was on the bill. And uh, I was like, no one really ever said anything. You know, the guy, the club didn't call and say, where are you guys? You know, or what's going on? And Izzy and Bill didn't call or Axel and Slash didn't call. And it was just sort of like, so I just went down there and was walking up. And of course there was hardly anybody there. It's Troubadour. It wasn't a big, <laughs> there's probably you know 25 people there the whole night and i was just walking and parked the car which was difficult I had to park a couple blocks away and i was walking up to the front and there was nobody out there and i just saw axel like walk out and he sees me and he's kind of like kind of like bows his head a little bit like sort of in that sort of sincere but shameful <laughs> look I go, hey, how's it going? What, what happened? You guys are here, right? And he's like, yeah. I go, did you play? He's like, yeah. Because I feel bad, man. You know, like he was manning up to it. And he didn't, still didn't go into it. I go, so, well, you just got somebody else then, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, we're going to use this guy for a walk. And uh, I was like, okay, well, cool. Keep in touch. And um, I was a little bit bummed, but I kind of expected it. So it wasn't like, ah. I just went, okay, well, whatever. Mm. These guys are always crisp. They'll be back. <laughs> no, they were, not, I mean, they were consistent. Thing. You were like, all right, whatever. Yeah, okay. The I, funny I thing it. is that, like, in the, you know, decades of weird internet people trying to figure out who that bass player was between Steve Darrow and Duff McKagan, you know, it was like, still nobody really knows who that guy was. <laughs> it wasn't Duff. It was Ole. Uh, I, I it don't wasn't Ole. It wasn't Ole. No. It was some guy named Snake or Spider or something like that. And uh, I still don't know who it is. And so I don't even know if they remember, to be honest, you know. But it was a, one of those other weird things you guys can all uh, try to solve the mystery of. I like that. Wow. You, you, you let me know when you find out. I, I will. Um, and then, so uh, then, okay, so again, not long after that period, um, you know, I booked the show and my there, there's a flyer, which you might have seen. It's slash drew the caricatures of all of us. Mm. And he drew all the flyers at that from when he was officially in the band. He started doing the flyers because he's a really good artist and stuff. A lot of them had his character. He had this girl named Shirley that was his sort of cartoon character that he has tattooed. One of his first ones that he had tattooed. On sure. She had like a yeah. row of teeth, you know, really big teeth. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, Shirley always like made her way onto the flyers and stuff in those days. It's kind of like that was his thing. And uh, so there's a picture of, of me and the flyer, but I didn't actually play the show. And um, uh, Poison played and they played. And I don't know if, you know, they even talked to each other that night. I don't really know. <laughs> it was way later after that that Slash would, would audition for them. So, and then things got, you know, they frittered out again, like they did. They just went for a couple of while where no one really was sure what was going to happen next and they weren't really they're always looking for the right guys you know like the perfect guys they get guys temporarily but they're always looking for like the 
the formula. And somewhere in the interim, at that point, you know, Pyrus had turned into LA Guns. Right. And uh, LA Guns. And Hollywood Rose. Hollywood Rose. Well, you know, LA Guns went in a bunch of different uh, stages as well. They went from sort of basically just being Pyrus with a different name. Then they went into being like the Rob Jagos LA Guns. And then they went into being also sort of getting these punk guys uh, in the early days, which was sort of were the scene I came out of, you know, which was, I thought was really strange, but they had gotten this guy, Nikki beat the drummer who was a legendary punk drummer from the weirdos and the bags and uh, Venus and the razor blades. And he was in chili peppers early on. And, you know, he was like this older guy, but he had the mop black hair, you know, and was simple, you know, uh, he too was getting sort of sick of, uh, hardcore and was looking to do something a little more rock and roll because he was old enough to have been playing drums when Aerosmith was big, like the first time around, you know. And uh, then they got Paul, the singer, who was actually also a drummer, Paul Mars, I guess he calls himself, or Paul Black. And he was a drummer in these punk bands that we were playing with, like called the Mau Mau's. And he was in the Joneses, which were like a real kind of stonesy, dollsy punk band. And um, so. Tracy had that going on and then uh, and then he had gotten the financial backer Raz, you know, uh, who you probably heard about. Raz Q, sure. And then the, so there was all, all of a sudden all his focus was on L.A. Guns. Like, you know, even though they were sort of like second in line with the GNR, you know, Hollywood Rose. And it's one point Izzy was even living with Tracy at his mom's place, literally like 100 yards from Fairfax High. Oh, that's right. The school yeah. and Tracy. And so they had this crazy little apartment in Hollywood uh, or a duplex. His mom lived there and Tracy. And then they had like two or three or sometimes four like rock dudes would just like rent a floor space or a couch with <laughs> Tracy's pad and stay there for however long. And so uh, I remember going just in the interim when I knew I wasn't in the band, but I was still buddies with them, you know, was, I was like, I get it, whatever. I'm looking for another band too. You know, I figured I could sort of do better. <laughs> Bad mistake. Yeah. But uh, at that time they didn't know it was just, yeah. a, you know, right. How, so how could go, you know at that time? Izzy would go, I'm, I'm a Tracy's come pick me up and we can go to whatever, you know, see the show. Just pick me up at six o'clock. You know, it's over by Fairfax high by canners. I was like, okay. So I go and they're like, there'd be all these dudes at Tracy's house and uh, uh, we'd kind of hang out and shoot the shit and I get to know him and just see how, you know, the weird little situation they had going there. And then Axel would come over, knock on the door, be Bill, you know? And, uh, so it was just this. And so the bands were like that. I mean, if you really want to like just concentrate it, the bands were sort of like. Inner, incestuous. Incestuous. <laughs> you know, the guy that, replaced me and carried all came from this other band that you know the drummer you know it was like but it was cool that you were able to be friends with them after yeah yeah i mean it was you know there's there was i think the only time when things got a little weird temporarily was so it's at some point after trying numerous times like hollywood rose just didn't ever get off the ground you know like they they try and uh you know duff was probably on the radar of everyone at, at that point too, but whether or not he, he was already playing with other people too around town. Sure. Small bands, you know, and, uh, it, the, 
time once LA guns started getting shit going, cause they had Raz and they, all of a sudden they had a fan and they had new equipment and they had new clothes and they had a, an EP out and they had a, you know, he was really like uh, helping them hype the shit out of the band with aver- paying for advertisements and all the stuff that you needed to get to be considered like a legit kind of sure. part of the band. And so uh, Tracy asked Axel to sing and he just did it after, you know, he knew that, I think he knew in his mind that, well, this is just an opportunity because I'm not doing anything else. You know, I'm working That's tower it. video. I know. That's right. Ax, uh, Raz got Axel to sing for LA Guns for like uh, a little while. Yeah. And so I remember going to a show as just, a, I might've even given one of them a ride. I don't remember, but at the Troubadour, something to do. And it was, LA that LA guns opening for London, who was of course always a big headline Hollywood band because that was the band Nikki Six and Blackie Lawless were in and the guy from Mott the Hoople was the singer and all this stuff, but it was basically just different versions. So anyways, they could they could always like headline one of the nicer clubs in West Hollywood and and whoever they wanted they could get to open. So, so it was like London and LA Guns. And at that point, Izzy had joined London. Right. Because it was the same kind of deal. He was like, well, I'm not doing anything else. These guys, these guys know a lot of people. They get good shows. I'll just do it for a while. They look cool. They, they wear a lot of makeup, you know, and they, uh, chicks go and see them. You know, we're all they're Like when I was in the band and even before they were always struggling to get like decent gigs, like gigs where there was a lot of people and people just really into it. It was always like, not enough people or the people that were there were, were there to see a different kind of rock, you know? And so it didn't go over always well, you know? So it's, it's safe to say that none of like any of their success caught you, had to have caught you off guard. Yes. So yeah. when they finally became guns and roses, like wh- I guess, where were you and what, what were you thinking? Cause I've, we, we've obviously gone over the story where it took like a year for appetite to break. Yeah. yeah. But when you, I guess, I guess two different things. When you first heard, okay, here's Guns N' Roses, what did you think? And then when Guns N' Roses finally became, whoa, mm-hmm. Guns N' Roses, I guess, yeah. where were you? What did you think of that? Well, the the thing is, is like being, it was different, like being here in LA and being plugged into this, that scene and those people. Cause I was still, you know, sort of friends with them. I didn't see them as much cause they, you know, they'd all got into, different drugs and things and different habits and different moved on. And they had money from the, you know, the label, uh, the signing advance. So they, you know, they were sort of like having fun and they were sequestered at the same time, you know, like the management had them. So this is after they've signed with Geffen, but even before that, like from the point of say, like, you know, 85 to 86, I mean, they got signed in 86. Did the record come out in 86 or 87? 87. Okay. So they got signed in 86. And I was out of the band by, you know, 85-ish, maybe a little little into 85. So, But in that interim, say 85, that's when it was sort of like, okay, this is when, this is when they, you know, after the Hell Tour, they'd gotten tough. They'd, they'd solidified. They'd gotten rid of Steve Adler's, you know, huge drum set. Um, they sort of, you know, toned down. They toned down the the metal and made it more straight rock and roll and they toned down some of the, the punkiness and made it a little more arena. You know, there's just, they, 
they'd really sort of all come together and, and focused on their thing. And they were starting to finally get those gigs that they wanted to, like they were, they were able to open for some, like they'd open for kicks when they played at the Troubadour, you know, okay. and kicks were the band that we all knew from the back of hip parader magazine. You know, they were from like Pennsylvania or something. And they finally came out here and, you know, they got to open for them and then they got to open for some of the bigger local bands. And then they started getting their own crowd. And then people were going, oh, when are you guys going to play like headline and stuff? When are you going to play Orange County? When are you going to play, you know, Santa Barbara? When are you going to play in the Inland Empire and stuff like that? You know, like the suburbs of around here, not just Hollywood, you know, but like, right. it would be like our version of the tri-state area, you know, like, I gotcha. And uh, it's like, if you equate it to the, the Twisted Sister movie when they just pretty much just played Long Island, Long Island. And then the second that they branched out to those other places, they went, you know, they, every gig, they got more and more and more. That's people. a good analogy. Sure. You know? But they were never that big to begin with. So that's where the, anal- the you know, the analogy has got to stop because GNR was never, <laughs> even at the shittiest Twisted Sister show, there's probably 150 people you know, <laughs> like in the bar days when they were playing cover songs, you know, fair. Yeah. The GNR was still, you know, plenty of times when it was just our girlfriends if we had them, and, and you know Tracy and Mark, and that's it. Sound so were you surprised, I guess, when yeah. they got signed? Well, so there, it, was, signed, it was a right? thing because, like I was saying, okay, so you're say in the timeline you're 85 to 86, right? There was this trajectory of them becoming a big local band before getting signed together. They didn't just go from like we got Duff, we got signed to Geffen, we're platinum. It, right. didn't, it seemed like that to everyone else. I think by the time the record came out, like by the time Appetite came out, it just was like, I mean, it was on MTV that day, it seemed like, you know, and then it just rose and rose and rose and rose and rose from there. Rose meaning rising. I gotcha. Um, <laughs> uh, but there was this interim of a year or so when it was, they were like, that was the real chaotic time. I mean, that was like when the, it was even, it was just as shaky as it was in the days when I was playing with them, but they had more at stake because they were getting a good following and they were getting, getting the right people to come and see them and the right people evolved and the right people hearing them. And then different substances started coming in and making things better or worse, whatever, you know, there was even a time, when um, there was another Hollywood Rose gig that was spearheaded by Izzy, where Slash wasn't involved at all. And it was, we did it on a New Year's Eve in San Pedro, which is like, you know, an hour south of here, like a coastal town. And uh, another one of those things when Izzy had been in like, you know, London and been quit or fired or whatever. And was like, okay, I'm ready to do something. I, I'm in London now. I got a name going. I got, I got like clout, you know, um, we got to get this glam thing going again. And I had, I had actually uh, been in a couple bands and not, you know, just wasn't happy. And I'd actually sent an audition tape to Hannah rocks. Cause at this point it was like razzle had been killed uh, when they were supposed to play here and, you know, gotten in touch with them. Like you guys, you guys need a drummer. I'll look to England. You know, I play drums and that never happened of course. But um, so Izzy was like, okay, well I've met a handful of new people and, I got this gig booked and um, a lot of times it would work that way. A lot of times there'd be, you'd call a club and say, okay, I got June 27th and it would be April or May. And they go, okay, well I got the gig. So now I got to get a band. 
you know, and they'd right. work it out. They'd work it out. <laughs> and then sometimes there wouldn't be a band the next day or a week later. And sometimes it would, that was, you know, so anyways, there was a lot of shit going on in that time when they were just starting to like, you know, play locally and be a headlining local band. And um, so I saw that rise and then, then they got signed and they were still, still no one knew who they were outside of LA. I mean, they were doing better stuff, obviously, and they had some mm -hmm. money, but they, the Joe public anywhere outside of California didn't know who they were. There was no, nothing, you know? Um, so it was when appetite came out and when they started hooking up on the bigger tours and stuff like that through Geffen, then they exploded. So I actually saw this sort of blurry, like and there was times I swear I'd get news from the camp, you know, cause we stayed friends with, we had mutual friends and okay. I'd see them occasionally girlfriends. We just get news every, every week there was more soap opera <laughs> and it's from the, the guns camp, you know? And, uh, it was just sort of like a little heavier than it was in, back then. Cause they sort of, you know, they, like I said, they had a little money. They had a little substance. They started getting like serious girlfriends or serious strippers taking care of them. And, you know, serious other bands starting to take notice. And the whole scene was moving in that, in that direction, you know, like a whole genre was sort of like starting to happen. And it's funny because, you know, faster pussycat and I think LA guns even got signed before they did like to majors. Like I know Faster Pussycat got signed to Electra and Jet Boy like a year before GNR did, and they were sharing bills and they were friends and you know stuff mm -hmm. in those days. But they were like sort of those bands and stuff were like sort of slated to be the the next big thing, you know. More they so were supposed to be like Guns N' Roses before you know. Yeah, Guns N' Roses was a thing. Yeah, so, yeah. So did you hear then? Uh, you know, obviously you heard the really the early stages. Mm -hmm. of, of of some of these songs that yeah. end up on Appetite. Yeah. When you heard Appetite, when you heard Anything Goes in that version, yeah, yeah, yeah. did you did you get it? Maybe like why the world's like, why Guns N' Roses elevated to the heights that they did as opposed to a Jet Boy or uh, maybe some other bands? Did you, was it different to you? You being so immersed in the situation, did it sound different to you? Did you be like, wow? Honestly, yeah, honestly, I was a bit surprised. I was like, really? Because I knew it's like knowing somebody from high school and then, you know, when they're 25, they've changed their name. They've got a completely different look and they're like, oh, that was what I was before. I'm this other guy now, you know, and you, you talk to them and you're like, you say their old name and they don't look at you, you know, and then you say their new actor name or their rock name. And they're like, oh. you know, it's like they sort of had really retooled like um, a lot of the stuff. I mean the songs like you mentioned, like that were anything goes and shadow and uh, stuff like that. Um, they were way different than we were doing them before. And if you, if you basically in a nutshell, if you took like air except in motorhead and mushed them with, um, you know, Aerosmith and Nazareth, that's kind of where we were, where everything was fast, double bass, real aggressive. But with that, you know, seventies rock and roll coming from the Aerosmith side and the, and the, the Nazareth side and, and stuff like that, you know, and ACDC and stuff like that. And, but with that early eighties, like frantic sort of 
aggression. And so all that stuff got stripped away and got sort of, you know, brought in more bluesy, brought in more uh, melody, you know, and slowed down everything significantly mm. just in the music part. And then I think Appetite 2 is so, uh, is so all over the place, like song-wise, because in a good way, but like, because of different writers, you know, Izzy had his more say on certain songs that would be the earlier songs or the more um, kind of bluesy, heartbreaky kind of songs. And then, of course, the big riffy songs were, you know, like Welcome to the Jungle and tons of riffs and a lot of lead parts and, you know, Wawa and stuff like that, you know, like uh, was obviously Slash. And then the, the ballads and stuff was more like Axel, you know. And uh, so that was a surprise. And I just was surprised that it, it got as big as it did. Um, because every, every is just like all of a sudden it was like the band that everyone was into. And it was like, well, we were kind of always there in a weird way. You just weren't. I could have told you that, you know, two years ago, <laughs> I told you I had this band, you know, and now we wanted to play with you. And you're like, you know, you know. And uh, the whole music industry, like, treated them different afterwards, too. I mean, even sure. the they were, um, you know, associated with early on as they were climbing up, you know, the touring, touring, like, like, you've probably heard the story about when they opened for Alice Cooper in Santa Barbara, right? Which one, uh, remind me, because there's like so many. Basically, one of the first, oh, where's Axel? He's really late incidents. Okay. Got because it was a bigger show it was, I mean, it happened around town at like little clubs, but it happened to a lot of people <laughs> on that level. So it wasn't a big deal, but it was like, they had been, it was at interims. Alice had just made his big comeback in 86. Right. With <sighs> constrictor, I guess. Right. So he was, hadn't been doing anything for years and he would, he, gotten you know he was retooling his whole band and his whole image to be more 80s metal right and um and in the interim uh he would do these uh, warm-up shows in like the suburbs before he'd go on a full tour like he'd do them like an hour outside of la san bernino santa barbara full-on the same production in a nice big place or a medium-sized place but it just would be like a warm-up show like before they were unadvertised you know and stuff like that and it Guns N' Roses got asked to be, because they were when the, the Cat House Club with mm-hmm. Ricky Rockman and Axel, and they were all a big part of that scene. And uh, Alice's people were sort of sort of hanging around, noticing that this, okay, this is like where, this is where the people are, you know, the people that we need to reach are, are in this pool. We need to start mm-hmm. grabbing from this pool of people. So they got GNR. They'd been signed, but no, still no, still no record. No one knew who they were yet. They got to play in Santa Barbara in a big stage, you know, opening for Alice, which was all of our idols, you know, even them. And uh, we went to the show and it was, uh, they were all up on stage, you know, set up and we're okay. And they were like, kind of like, you guys, you guys got, you only got like a, whatever, a 40 minute set or something, you know, cause you're the opening band and no one really cares. They don't see Alice. And um, they were like, it's just stalling a little bit in you know, five minutes. And, like, ah. and there's like, Axel's not here. 
you know, it's like, well, where is he? He's like, I don't know. He called from somewhere. He said he was just leaving the valley. And it was like, you know, half hour before it was time to be on stage and it's an hour and a half drive, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And so they stalled and stalled and stalled. And then finally they said, you know, the Alice people were furious. Like they were like, what the fuck is this? We give you guys a chance, you know, right. This is what we get. And it's funny because that was one of Alice's tricks. If you read any, <laughs> I'm a huge fan. It was like Alice would, be up in the dressing room watching a hockey game or a horror movie. And he'd like Madison square garden would be like, he'd be an hour and a half late to go on stage <laughs> and he had to finish this movie, you know, but at the same time, his people weren't, they didn't think it was fun. <laughs> sure. So it turns out Axel actually sort of showed up, but they were like, fuck it. We, we got to start playing. Let's just play. Let's play some instrumental. We'll just, we got to make some sound because we only got 15 minutes to play now. Cause we're, they started playing some songs and like Izzy would like kind of sing, try to sing. And you could tell that they were just like, yeah, shit. And um, then then Ronnie Snyder, who was uh, probably know his name. He was in road crew with the bass player. And he was one of the early, you know, roadies for, for guns and roses, like the whole first kind of wave of tours that they did. He was like the right hand man. Cause he was buddy of slashes and stuff. He was like the roadie and he just, he came up and they said, you want to sing? And he, they did a whole lot of Rosie ACDC because they used to do that in their set, you know, or some ACDC song and kind of, you know, kind of got through it, but it wasn't like at an axle level. And then they were sort of like, okay, thank you. Good night. And people were just sort of like, what happened? You know, was <laughs> Alice come on. And then, I mean, even I was friends with some of the Alice people, manager, mint and, they were like backstage, you know, going, okay, we fucked up. You know, not only we're going to set an example, not only will you not ever play with Alice Cooper again, but we're going to make sure that you have a really hard time playing anywhere. <laughs> like <sighs> almost like a, you know, a mafia move, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. And then within a year they were like best buds. Hey, come on. Yeah. Come on stage with me. You know? And it was like, they, so they, they'd sort of, you know, cross each other in the trajectory. Of, yeah. For you, for your perspective, did. it just seemed like everything that could have gone wrong for this band yeah. did. Yeah. And then all of a sudden for them. So and somehow or another, they were able to fly straight and land, you know, uh, uh, the skin of their teeth, you know, and that's kind of like look, looking back on it. That's kind of the, the lore of, or the, the sort of thing with GNR is just like, it was just, a, who knows? like a cloud of dust like that's part of their appeal was that you never knew when something like that was going to just fall apart or mysterious yeah Yeah. scott you know they claim that it made its way into their sound and into their vibe and you know okay the first the first record cover was banned instantly you know like (laughs) painting the robert williams and stuff like that and so that was like okay well that's off to a good start you know but it just didn't it just sort of helped everything in the long run you know it's like the controversy kind of just added to the, you know, hugeness, I think. How often did you, cause you mentioned at the beginning and I don't, we're going to have to do a part two. I don't want to keep you here that much longer. This is like the yeah. longest episode I've done in a, in a long Uh-oh, time. Sorry. No, it's all right. Cause I enjoy talking to you and uh, you know, it's when there's an, a guest that deserves the time, you know, then like, yeah, let's go into overtime. Yeah, we can do part two if you want one day. 
<laughs> well, maybe we'll do uh, you, you uh, and Roy Orbison. So yeah. the same, the same episode. That I made a funny good. story about his brother too, but I'll, I'll tell that in part two. Okay. The other uh, Orbison. So I want to, but I want the few things I want to get into uh, before we wrap up, especially, you know, it's stuff that things that you're doing now with sister midnight. So oh yeah. Uh, but you mentioned early the, in the interview that you, you, you have spoken to slash, I guess, somewhat recently, like how, Often, like, did you stay friends? Like, who did you say stay friends with? Well, like, it's after weird they because, got big. Uh, Izzy was like I said, Izzy and Bill were the, the first bros in, in that set of people that I right. stayed in touch with, and they were always cool. And then even early on, like Izzy just checked out. He just checked out. He just it had a lot to do with the the lifestyles and the mm. addictions and stuff that were going on. It's like if you weren't in that set of doing that sort of stuff, people don't want to have anything to do with you. You know, mm. so I didn't talk to him for years. Still haven't. Even before he went AWOL, even like before the real Where's Izzy, it was like yeah. before they got signed, he was sort of checked out. And it was too bad because we're the ones that like hung out the most. Mm. And Slash was the one I, you know, knew the most recent, you know, of the people. And, and I still, I'm still in touch with him on and off. Um, he still lives around here somewhere. Uh, you know, and I'll see him some, some different events and I'll get in touch with him. And, um, he's very cool. You know, the other people are sort of behind their, you know, you know, the, the management wall or the, the moat, the metaphoric yeah, moat that surrounds yeah. them. I mean, I haven't tried to, to get a hold of Bill or anything like that, but, you know, uh, I imagine that there's never any problem that I know of between uh, me and any of those guys. You know, there was never that one fist fight or the one like, you know, uh, so it was just more of a matter of like, uh, and so there's really no reason. And I, I got no, nothing against him, uh, personally, uh, anybody. So, uh, but they've all gone through so many different changes from, from then to now, even, even the like post reunion changes that they've all gone through. And then we had 2020 in the middle of all that, you know, which sure. fucked everybody up and changed true. everyone's priorities and perspectives and plans Absolutely. and knows how much money was, you know, made or lost in their world. You know, if anything though, I want to make, I want him to say to you, thank you for naming me Axel Rose. Like <laughs> if that's the, if that's the, the truth, like to at least for him to, cause he, ha- he has a great memory according to uh, Doug Goldstein, uh, their former manager. And slash so someone's got to remember how that, you know, that Axel thing yeah. happened. Because if you did it, I want you to make, you deserve credit. I know. I never even got a gold record. My name's on the record, you know? I mean, it's like, there's plenty of people who are like, you, know, you pay the 140 bucks and you can get a gold record if you're somehow connected with it. And they got them and they're, that's the biggest thing in their house. And I never, mm-hmm. you know, but Slash was still Saul and he was, you know, wanted to be called Slash, but it was sort of took a while before everyone really like, did it, you know, and, um, as a trip. Uh, so yeah, the Axel, like I said, um, we had, they always, they always thought that, uh, the, me and my girlfriend is now my wife. They, they always thought we were like, like way weirder than anyone else. Like, <laughs> you guys say really weird stuff. It's cool and everything, but you know, and like they called us the monsters. Nice. They referred to me and her as the, oh, the monsters are here, you know, and, uh, you know, that's kind of as weird as we were. I mean, coming from somebody who those, that whole 
group of people that were probably involved with so way more depravity and decadence and weirdness and abuse, mental, physical, whatever, than I had ever been, you know, exposed to, to be considered weird is kind of an honor, you know, but we're really not that weird. We're just kind of weird in an Adams family way, you know. I'm I'm into it absolutely. Yeah, you know, uh, just, I'm looking forward to the new Monsters film by uh, Rob Zombie. I hope that's going to be good. I'm kind of not, you know, to be honest. But that's a whole other thing. All right. So, but <laughs> then here's I guess the the, the segue because with, oh. with Slash, if I ever got the opportunity to speak with him, a lot of it will be about horror films. And oh looking, yeah. And looking at your your background, and I got to ask, who is that lovely lady behind you? Is that your? No, that's uh, it's that, not. It's it looks like from are. a film. It is. It's from this. There's this paperback from the movie called Candy, Candy from 1968. It's kind of one of my favorite films growing up. Uh, very weird, obsc- obscure cult Euro kind of psychedelic. Uh, it was basically like the psychedelic Lolita film that was made. And it was had all these huge, huge, huge actors in it. But it should have been as big as anything. And it wasn't because it was produced you know it's part german part italian part french uh three different directors you know blah 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 but it had you know her and she was like miss teen sweden 1965 or something like that so she just like went straight into like making these kind of funny euro sexy euro movies um it just sounds like the um the kind of you would just look on Slash's social media at Instagram, and it sounds yeah. like all the things that are in, you're interested in, and you do. Yeah, so. it's weird. Yeah, because I'm I am a fan. Every time I see one of those things, I go, "That's that's cool," and I look on it, and it's like Slash's post. I'm like, dude, um, you know, wasn't so much like that back then, but definitely now. Like, you know, we're eye and eye on that kind of stuff. Well, and maybe same with Rob Zombie okay. and. Uh, any of those people, uh, Jonas Ackerland, I mean, we're all just rock and rollers who were into rock, you know, into weird shit back then. And rock and roll was just sort of a way to, to bring that in, you know, and, and once those guys all became, you know, wealthy and had enough power and knew enough people to make those things a reality, they did. And I certainly would probably do the same thing if I had that behind me, you know, well, I'm hoping, you know, but to also put something else out into the universe that you and Slash can collaborate on this Sister Midnight thing. Can you tell us about it? Because it's really interesting. It seems like up Slash's alley, what yeah. you're doing. Well, you know, uh, I actually hadn't even thought of asking him because I think he's got better things to do. <laughs> Same with that. Does, but he, you know him. He he yeah, plays with anybody. He, he always yeah, up for a collaboration. Was, to, to get to the point of like, to the meat of like, well, how did you feel when you saw GNR get big? And were you pissed? Were you hurt? Were you disappointed? Or did you want to commit suicide? Yes <laughs> and no. The biggest thing that got to me uh, at the time that I was so surprised at, at the time was how much they did, even before the record came out. I mean, it was like, right before that and up until, you know, they broke big. It was like, literally they were jumping on stage with everybody who came through LA. I mean, they were on stage with cheap trick. They were on stage with Alice, you know, on, in the Penelope Spheres movie, you know, they were on stage, yeah. with, you know, Iggy pop, you know, and, and um, all the rock bands and the metal bands. And, and it was just kind of like, that was the thing that you did. It was you like one of the guns and roses guys would show up all fucked up and say, Hey man, I want to play along with you. And they'd go, okay. And I was like, that 
that's, I mean, more than the money in those days, that was like the thing that was like, Hey, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, but, uh, and there's still slash just continued to be that guy from Michael Jackson on down, you know, to everybody. And yeah, to have those opportunities. Able to play with Ozzy and be actually like almost be in black Sabbath and, you know, being able to be, uh, in all those bands and just, even the pink Floyd thing and the cream things. I mean, all these really super duper, not just like, okay, well, this is a hair metal reunion. You get to come up and jam with Skid Row or you get to come up and play with Cinderella. It's like, he's playing with the guys, you know, like Hendrix's band and Clapton's band and, you know, the guys he's became one of the guys, you know, like the big guys, you know, but uh, people, uh... So with that, because people actually ask you if you thought about committing suicide after. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I, I'm, but did you like, really think about, like, did you really have a depression or it was just like, whoa, like, how did this happen? Or like, it was how- both, you know, it was both. But at the same time, I was sort of like, you know, I was relieved knowing that I probably wouldn't have, I probably would have left on my own at some point, whether I came back or not, you know when things were leveled out a little bit, which they seem to never have happened, you know? Right. Like I was just not into the drama. And same, I went through the punk rock years of just everyone being chaotic and on drugs and drama and managed to just go, you know what? I think I can just find some people who just want to make some shit happen. And, you know, they seemed like they were into the same thing too. And so it clicked. And then I, I probably would have, I've left bands for a lot less, drama <laughs> than yeah. they have you can't change that i mean that's, no. that's the way it was and that's but that's also again, that's who you were formula that makes them exciting i guess and same with la guns i mean i was like played a lot of different projects with tracy over the years after they sort of became big and he didn't need to come back and 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 talk to his old friends but he did you know and I, I mean, I saw him more than I'd ever see Slash and Axel and stuff like that. And we jammed a lot and we were supposed to do all kinds of things together. And, uh, you know, they'd, they'd fall apart before he'd get mm-hmm. off the ground and, or I'd get, you know, booted out. Or, uh, we went to New York actually and played in the mid eighties with, uh, it was me and Tracy and this singer who was a penthouse pet who <laughs> flew us all out from LA to, to back her up. She wanted to be a singer. Wow. And, um, uh, and it was, she wanted the, the cool LA, you know, crazy street rock glamour people to, to come to New York and sort of show them how it was done, you know, <laughs> then we got, uh, the guy that was in later, two guys that were in kingdom come, remember them mm-hmm. kingdom come, they were a big eighties, you know, Zeppelin type metal band. And so it was Tracy and I, and those two guys, and we backed her up and, uh, nothing ever happened. It, it seemed like it was going to, and, uh, you know, there was all kinds of talk of labels and magazines and everyone followed her because she was Ben Aspet and she was very big in the club scene there and everyone wanted a piece of that, but nothing ever really came out, no recordings or anything. So I stayed, you know, buddies with Tracy. And then it turns out that they lived like down the street from me when I was living closer to Melrose, all those guys lived in the same neighborhood, like a block away. So we'd see each other a lot. And, uh, and he kind of became that guy after the nineties and sort of all the, the, the lesser hair metal bands sort of took a dive in popularity and he became the guy that would play with anyone. You know, he was like jamming with all kinds of people and 
Because sure. that's the thing with another thing between it's always a big rivalry between Tracy and Slash in school and everything. And it's, the bottom line is that they both can play. Um, oh. They both are good guitar players. And a lot of guys in that scene weren't. They were able to do one thing to get, like they had a Van Halen trick and that was all they could do. Or they were had a, a, you know, a Johnny Thunders, New York Dolls, trash kind of vibe, but they never could really go beyond that. And Trace, both Tracy and Slash, especially Slash, like he can, like I said, he can jam with Clapton's people or he could jam with the punk people or he could jam with the Foo Fighters or he could, you know what I mean? And like, and be on TV, like uh, Conan O'Brien or something. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, yeah. Play circles around everybody, you know? And um, so that was a difference in, 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 in that too, you know, uh, that they've actually good players and they just want to play guitar. You know? Did you get a chance to see Guns N' Roses after? Have you seen the band you know that, um, that we now now as a GNR? Not the recent, not since the reunion. Okay. I actually inquired about getting tickets for Dodger Stadium because I thought that would be like something that could be easy to happen. And they told me how much it would be for me to get tickets. Great. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's kind of a lot <laughs> to be on the guest list and have it be 300 bucks a piece is kind of, you know, I mean, some oh. people out there are going, Holy shit, I would have paid four times that much. But at the same time, it was like, well, I was buddies with the guy who was in the cult who opened for them too. And neither of them could, make it happen, you know, and I said, okay, well, I'll see you some other time. I want to know if that actually gets back to Axel. If Axel hears that Steve Darrow would like to come, or if that's just the, the, the moat around it. I, I think it's the moat. And if it is, you know, that's again, that's when you get to a certain point. I mean, I've only seen it from the, you know, the bleachers. Like, I mean, I know plenty of people who've gotten, real successful and when you get to that plateau you there's so much other shit that just there's lawyers and there's promoters and there's um insurance and then there's like the hangers honors and then there's the family and then there's the family's lawyers you know and then all these different levels of like um stuff that you have to okay we need 50 tickets for you know and then when there's kids involved it's just okay, like cool. i I get it. I, I do. But there's got to be some like it's just people talking. Hey, yeah. Steve Darrow, who gave you your name. You, you haven't seen each other in a long time. You yeah. know, maybe I uh, give him a fifty dollar ticket. instead yeah, of exactly. I, I don't that, know. I mean, that would happen. That could happen. Uh, you know, I again, he's got more important people that, to worry about that are uh, maybe not on his they sure. would, you know, that are sure. way higher up in the hierarchy of things than I am, you know. Well, but, it might make you feel better that that uh, Roy Orbison spent a, a grand on his ticket, but he's got that pretty woman money, so. Is that, was that in, in back east somewhere? or No, he's going to the L.A. show. He's wow. To, yeah, he's going to the L.A. show. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I mean. Good for him. <laughs> that's the kind of the thing, like, I mean, going back to the, like, the you know, them opening for Alice Cooper and his warm up show. I mean, I was just happy to be uh, get into the show for free and I yeah. got in through Alice Cooper and I was like, see, <laughs> you know, I can, this is, this is really cool. I mean, you guys got your thing, you guys, you know, you got the people at the bar that you can let in and the strippers and stuff. But, um, you know, this is kind of more like, this is the real, the real business. And then now that they are beyond the real business, you know, I mean, there, there's so much more to, to worry about, but at the same time, I know Slash and I know people who know him for a long time. I know that um, 
Well, then we no, got to go back to Sla- Slash and you working together. So tell us, I want you to tell us about your project because it's a really okay. cool, interesting thing you have going on with Sister well, Midnight. Well, I have, yeah, the Sister Midnight is just something I've been doing pretty much 99% by myself for the last year and a half or so. And it was sort of a spinoff of my other band, Sonic Medusa, that's been together for a good little while, but um, nothing much has been happening with them. We put out an EP, like, you know, a few years back, and there's just a sort of like lag between recording. We've got a uh, recording done and everything. It's just not mixed right, and it's not going to be released for a while because 2020 put a big, you know, it's just pushed everything back. So Sister Midnight was just basically a something me being doing cover songs that I always wanted to do or stuff that was different out of the sphere of what the band was doing, you know, they're not just cover songs They're Uh, well, they are cover songs that I'm doing, uh, but they're, they're uh, not, but tell us like what the car of what, well, I do most, it's all been pretty obscure so far to me. It seems normal, but that's what I listen to. I listen to stuff that's not, on everybody's radar and um i've done a lot of uh a handful of horror movie like theme songs from horror movies i did uh, there was a cheap horror foo, film foo, film from 1980 called new year's evil and there was like it was supposed to be set in like the new wave era of la you know like mohawks and spandex and striped pants but the, the band that they got to be the band in the movie was super metal and they they just cut mohawks and wore funny clothes, but they were like sounded like you know really good like late seventies Judas Priest you know like total you know new wave of British metal kind of sound and and so I covered that song because every time it was on late night I'd be like the song is so cool why hasn't anybody done it so I love that because the soundtrack yeah. I'm into horror I, yeah I'm into Ninja Turtles and Ghostbusters so I'm, in, I'm into horror as well and those old I, I get it. so what's the name of that New, New Year's Evil. New Year's Evil, yeah. It was I don't think I've real, seen that yet. It was like a C movie, not even a B movie. A C I movie. love it. Is it on uh, Tubi TV? Hey, do you uh, that? It's, it, it pops. It, you can get it on even YouTube for free. Okay. It pops up every New Year's. It pops up especially. And, I'll uh, watch it. See, that's, to me, it sounds one, like something Slash would want to do. One, one big star named Roz Kelly. Okay. Who was actually played a part on happy days in the seventies, you know? Okay. So then I did another horror movie. I've done a few horror movies. I did um, one called shiver of the vampires, which was a Gene Rollin, a French director. He um, did a series of really weird sort of vampire slash erotic slash psychedelic uh, cheap movies in, in Europe in the early seventies. And um the vampire, he had like three vampire movies that were sort of his, like the sort of pinnacle of his work, you know, and uh, Shiver the Vampire is the nude vampire and one called Fascination. And uh, so I, there was a, a theme song of that movie that sounded like a, um, it was a really cool tune. And uh, it was set in the graveyard, and like steam and this headstones and bats flying around. But it was done in a different way, like not like your typical sort of Vincent Price horror movie. It was a little bit more bizarre and uh, cheap, I guess. And the song sounds like the original song was by this teenage, you know, prog band from from France called Arcanthus. And the song sounded like really, really, really early Pink Floyd meets, uh, you know, almost like a, a 
but it had this really dark Black Sabbathy feel to it. And, it, you know, I always wanted that to have more of when I was watching the movie, I wanted that song to just be that much heavier. So I did it. Mm. And it was instrumental. So I'd have to worry about getting a singer because I don't sing. And um, then I did. Uh, so that was one of my favorite ones. I just kind of bucket list song. And then I did another one that's gotten the most attention, not mainstream in any way, but gotten on a lot of other radio shows and, and video podcasts and stuff. And it was just themed to a movie called Psychomania from England. And it was, the movie was like made in 1973, but it looks like it should have been made in like 1968. It was like kind of that sort of behind the times, but it was about this, this motorcycle gang in England. They weren't like the hell's angels type gang. They were sort of like, they had leather jackets and they wore these helmets that had these like skulls painted on the front and they hung out in a graveyard and, and, you know, the, the, the graveyard was more like Stonehenge. It looked like okay. a <laughs> you know, real British goth kind of set. And uh, they'd go around and terrorize people in the town and do funny things. And they, uh, it turns out they'd found the secret of, of eternal life. And it wasn't vampirism. It was like this secret that you could kill yourself. And you, if you really wanted to, you could come back and you were invincible. So, the leader of the gang kills himself. They bury him with his motorcycle in the middle of this field. They, you know, they throw the dirt on him. And then like in the middle of the night, <laughs> the motorcycle rides out of the grave, <laughs> in a lot of dust, just like Motorhead did in the um, killed by death video. Nice. Uh, which I'm sure they borrowed it from that. And uh, anyways, this, the, the theme tune for that, the whole soundtrack of that movie was always a favorite of mine. And uh, it's, mostly instrumental it's really dark and really groovy it's not heavy in the metal sense but it's dark and gloomy and it and lots of hammond organ and sort of a you know deep purple meets the doors kind of a way but i'm into it see this just seems again up slashes alley so i yeah i don't know i'm gonna put, again, put it out in the universe for put it out in the universe slash yeah. uh you know sister midnight featuring slash for some obscure... we could even call him Saul hudson if he wants to be uh yeah i don't know find... contractually contractually bound by somebody else you know May- maybe i don't know find yeah, something I'm, like what's I'm your favorite for other singers too if there's anybody out there that's a legit rock singer of male female looking for people in different languages because there's songs i i, I have planned and German, oh, cool. Swedish, Spanish, um, French. There's all kinds of international, uh, obscure heavy rock from the past that no one, I mean, it's just sort of starting to come. If you look for it, you can find it nowadays, but it's fascinating to me. You know? Right on. So people can find uh, 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 Sister Midnight at facebook.com slash Midnight Neckbite. Right. And you're also on Instagram at Sister Midnight Mania. Right. And you're on Bandcamp as well. Bandcamp. Yeah, Bandcamp has all the tunes uh, for free to listen to. You can download them if you want. Ripple Music, a label that Sonic Medusa recorded with, also released the first maybe year's worth of Sister Midnight stuff on their website uh, for free as a like if you subscribe to their um, uh, their network of bands you know, there's freebies that he puts out and I'm just doing sister midnight in there. So you can find it there. Um, I actually have a few things that are, there's one on iHeartRadio, one of my tunes. Okay. Uh, it's, there's one song that made it to all the, the more mainstream platforms like iTunes and Amazon and iHeartRadio and Deezer and all that. 
That's great. Uh, you can find it there. There's also another Sister Midnight out there. Uh, maybe maybe more than one because it's such an obvious name <laughs> named after an Iggy song from The Idiot, which I literally was releasing the first song. I didn't know what to call it. And I just remember when I was 12 or 13, I wanted to call a band Sister Midnight and I never did. So I just said, <laughs> let's try that. And I'll, I'll change it later. It's kind of stuck. And it kind of adds to the like, well, is it some chick? Is it, is it a vampire chick? Is it, you know, <laughs> nobody really knows it's me. Uh, yeah, it took a second. I was like, wait, does he have a band with a girl? Like, okay. Yeah. Well, because I have a, a girl singing on a couple of the tunes. The girl yeah, that I yeah. worked with, uh, Amy, and um, she's a great singer. And she was more like the bass player in this band I was playing with a long time ago. And then um, some of the stuff that, that I choose vocally like this especially the soundtrack stuff from that era that I, you know a lot of it has that sort of almost choir church you know hmm. almost like something ghost would do in one of their songs or something you know the big like spooky sounding like evil choir kind of stuff so i need people that can actually do that type of singing not just like basic rock and roll right on I, I this is a very cool project that, that yeah you're, you're, so i'm doing that in, until the sonic medusa gets the next record out until something else comes along blah 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 but uh i'm hoping to get i have a lot of things in, done that i have interesting people on from all people that i've known in the past that um uh, i'm just hoping to to talk more people into doing it with me for for not a lot of accolades or money you know like well keep me posted Keep it's weird because I started it in probably 2018, 2019, right? And then mm-hmm. 2020 came along, and then everybody is like, hey, there's Paul Stanley doing a jam with somebody else in another town from his living room, and there's the Foo Fighters. Yeah. You know, so I'm kind of doing the same thing, like remote recording with different mm-hmm. people. Like I had one singer in Washington, and I had another guy in New York send me tapes and um, some of the stuff I did here. And so it was kind of like, seemed like a sort of a novel idea before lockdown to do stuff like that a little bit. And I still, I'm still going to do it that way if that's what it takes, you know, but um, okay. I don't play live obviously, cause it's just me playing all the instruments and it's <laughs> not, it's not one of those, like uh, there's some people that do that, that are, you know, programmed and they use synthesizers and mm-hmm. drum loops and, and they can, they're able to do it more mechanically. I just, mine's just straight up rock rock and roll background so everything has to be played with drums and bass and guitars and tambourines and stuff live you know and real hammond organs and all that stuff so i have to do that piece by piece and record it all track by track and then get the singers to come in and do it right on you know so that's the that's the idea is to do something that's like that but still has the sound of a full rock band you know i'm into it like I said, I'm into it, and I hope Slash is into it because that's, <laughs> it just seems like it's too perfect. It's too perfect. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, there's stuff that we I know. There's stuff that I've recorded that he, you know, him or somebody with that same taste would just like nail. Yeah, you know, I've done a Nazareth song. I've done. I got a UFO song in the in the pipeline. You know, got you know stuff like that. So it's just a matter of finding the right people, but. Well, I'm glad. If I can't to, find him. I'll do it myself. Right on. Well, <laughs> the way I look it, at it. It's awesome to to hear that you're you're doing things that you love now. You know, yeah. and, and the, all the way back from the uh, the goth mm-hmm. rock that you grew up with, mm-hmm. you're kind of making it your own thing now, in your own way, and, and uh, yeah. doing something really thanks creative for, with thanks it. Thanks for pointing that out because I think if people do even at all know what I've done, 
if they want, if they see me as a musician and like, okay, Steve, you were the guy that was in Guns N' Roses. You were the guy that was in Christian death. You were the guy that was like the glam guy. You know, it's like, they think that I should be in a, you know, a 2021 goth cyber band, or they think I should be in a, a kick-ass bluesy, you know, cowboy boot bandana band like GNR was, you know, or, uh, and it's like, I'm sort of somewhere in between all that. And that's kind of why I'm doing it. Cause it's like, if nobody else wants to do it with me, I'll do it myself. And I don't really give a shit. <laughs> right on. I love it. I love Thanks. it. Steve, thank you so much. This was, I enjoy talking to you. This is like the longest episode I've done in a while. And I know. I'm sorry. Was, no, 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 not at all. My listeners were looking forward to it. Like I said, I want to do part two maybe get Roy Orbison Jr. in on that. That might be fun. Just like you with what the pandemic has done with you're, you're coordinating with people all over the world. That's what the yeah. pandemic has, has done with, with podcasting. I really wasn't doing yeah. Zoom stuff before. So it's, yeah, it's yeah. cool to get a chance to, to see you, to see the guy who is part of Guns N' Roses history. And uh, as you all are, you're so much more than that one little part in history. Well, thanks, about- for, thanks for noticing that too, because... A lot of people don't see it that way if they see it at all, you know. <laughs> now we're all we all got a huge story, and I think that's just badass that you have Guns N' Roses as part of your story. I think yeah. that's just that's, that's yeah. Awesome. It's not really it's it's weird that it's taken thirty plus years for it to come out. Like, oh, there was another guy, the Fifth Beetle, or whatever. I know. And um, it, it's like like I said with. I'd been interviewed plenty of times over the past, even in the late eighties and early nineties for projects that never have probably seen the light of day, you know, because they were like a book or something like that. And, uh, they never got released. Um, and then how else before the internet, how else would you have known about things like that? You know, and mm-hmm. it was never included in any behind the music or any kind of things like that. So, so, this is your behind the mu- music, Steve Darrow. <laughs> yeah. And then like, I think with, with Mark's book, they were supposedly uh, like a mysterious, like it was up for like a, being redone as a film, you know, mm-hmm. which never happened. Obviously. Yeah. It was supposed so, to be James Franco was involved in it. And man, yeah, I mean, this band, enough. I mean, that's why people like idiot me who just <laughs> does a Guns N' Roses podcast. People love it because there's not a lot about the band out there. Especially, you know, it's the same story told over and over again. Yeah. Not yours, though. You know, and, and, and not yeah, yeah. Rasku's story. And yeah, not, yeah. You know, and people like it's that. A, it's a, they were, I mean, even, like I said, even in the early days before anything happened with them successfully, there was a lot of people in their weird little pool of, of girls, especially ones that weren't wives, just that helped them out, you know, whether they were strippers or, you know, uh, girls with a good job or uh, managers and, you know, just the, all kinds of friends and stuff that were like around just that saw something in the guys, you know? Well, I'm hoping, and I don't think I'm uh, letting any secret out of the bag, but I, there's somebody who I, I is trying to work on a Fairfax script. Oh yeah. And actually a listener of mine, I'll give him a shout out. I haven't gotten a chance to, to read it yet. Uh, he sent me, it was, oh, forgive me. He sent me a, just like a long, he's writing a script. So a fan is oh, writing right. a script as well. You know, I hope I didn't delete that by accident. But that's a whole other source of like, uh, because just because I didn't go there. Had I, had I gone there, if I was in the area a little bit earlier, it would have been all over with. I would have been, oh man, there would have been way more people. But 
I mean, there was like, you know, Flea and Ch- Anthony and right. Lenny Gravitz and um, besides Slash and Tracy Guns and, um, you know, everyone's family in those families. And uh, a lot of people who are not really like a lot of actors and, you know, Donovan's kid, you know, the pop singer Donovan, his kid Dono, who was, became sort of like a model. Like they were all went there and uh, a lot of punk people went there Again, this is, um, and then this, people this that were so in like, industry like like writers and directors and stuff that they went there because they lived in hollywood and that's what their you know family was doing or that they wanted to do and stuff so it's uh that's what we could do for future it can tie that in i got a story about Roy Orbison's brother and it has to do with fairfax high and cat bundy <laughs> oh okay right on and uh it's uh del clan he, he he just sent me a uh oh, listener yeah. of mine he sent me. So there's people trying to make the GNR movie. We'll see if it ever happens. But yeah, I mean, you, that can just be one chapter in the Fairfax saga, you know. Um, or Steve, yeah. you can write. You're writing the score, maybe to like a, a horror version. Yeah. of Guns of Roses. You know, it but, like it looks until just a couple of months ago, it looked like a horror movie set driving by there because it's been boarded up for a whole year, and that whole part of Melrose where where Fairfax High is has just become like very weird lately like it's never ever like that and so things will get back to normal but it's it's become more like a more like one of those apocalyptic night of the living dead type of scene oh, fun <laughs> right up our alley yeah we, we like that so, can you believe it i mean i've done 270 what this is 278 yeah and we've been talking for oh my god has it really been almost three hours and we still feel like we, it's been the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, well, that's what happened with Rich Beanstalk. And in his book, you know, I just remember it was about a three-hour phone conversation. And this might be the longest episode I've ever done, to be honest with you. Sorry, sorry. And yeah, that's all right. I think that. I mean, uh, if you write in the book, I got what three lines in that, <laughs> you know, and uh, a couple lines in a couple other books, and uh, you know, so they're able to edit out my blah blah blah. But so your people have have to sit through it. If they've oh. made it this far, we should give them a prize. If they make it to uh, all the way to the end credits of your show or whatever, give them something. All right. Well, if, if we can give, if we <laughs> finally get you the gold record, maybe we can give them the replica of your gold record or something like or, that. Or shit, I'll give them a free download of one of the songs. <laughs> all right. Oh, that works too. That works I'll too. A, um, I'll give them a Alice Cooper book that if another friend of mine wrote or. Oh, okay. Casino Royale. No, I won't give them that. That's too good. But, um, you know. There's all kinds of stuff that to reward people, but there's super fans out there and there's super fans that, that are old, older, that, that might know some of the stuff that, you know, line up with what I'm talking about as far as in the old days and GNR's childhood. And, and then there's people that are way younger that weren't born when any of this stuff was happening that I'm just worried that they'll get the wrong idea about everything. If they don't <laughs> get the stories at least sort of spelled out a little more. You know, it's like I looked, listened to the Chris Weber version of what you guys did a while ago. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he had some points too about the way things were, and he's coming from a whole different side of Hollywood, you know, than than I. But just the way that the scene was at that point was was so uh, different and pre-internet and pre pre this and pre that. Everything was really super divided and and uh, segmented, and so. Uh, for kids, kids got it so easy these days. <laughs> I know, I know, I, I get it. As someone who was born in '83, sorry, I, I trust me, I do get it. My, I do get it. 
Yeah, uh, but, we used but, to have to make our own black t-shirts with a sharpie, <laughs> in it, you know, and like you can go to Hot Topic, buy whatever you want these days. It's like stuff like that just seems, uh, but there's plenty of, plenty of more stories, even when talking about to the uh, guys in the original the Mark Canner's book, he did a film sort of segment of the book back then when it was out and it was only, you know, specific uh, subscribers could see it. And it was just a little short interviews with a few. Sure. We got to, uh, next time we got to talk about monster magnet. It was a lot of, <laughs> a lot of things. So, uh, yeah, that stuff is like, um, you know, there's, I just figured that they wanted the wacky stories about the crazy times in Hollywood and all the, the fights we almost got into or the, the shit people threw at us and stuff and the working for the LA weekly. And they just didn't want to hear any of that stuff. They wanted, they were very, you know, it was very calculated to like, you know, timeline and, and stuff like that and then you get the people who just want the debauchery they want well were you in on any of the orgies where you, did you, did you get the strippers and you did you you know blah 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 and i was like yeah well that's a whole other side of the story that you know she probably shouldn't tell unless it's no you're, not, you're your wife may you're my your wife may watch this podcast i don't yeah. want to i don't want to talk about any of that stuff no yeah. you not only just the gnr stuff uh but your opinions on things the uh, i feel educated about the guitar I mean, Thank so you. this was uh this was a really fun conversation, Thank you. Uh, Steve. And I hope, like, you know, obviously we get to do it again. Maybe not soon because this is a conversation that's going to take a lot to digest for people. Yeah. Right? So I don't yeah. know, maybe sooner later than later, there might not be much much of a later for any of us. You know, the way things are going. So, well, later this summer, maybe this fall. But okay. I mean, uh, I would love to connect with you. Uh, maybe a Halloween. Ooh, okay. Let's we got to talk just, about that. Just, just saying. All right, my favorite holiday. Now I'm excited. <laughs> All right, so uh, with that being said, and we'll get your opinion on Chinese democracy next time, uh, okay. if you have one. I uh, don't, but I'll, I'll get one. But okay. Now and then if you want me there to. There you go. All right, so we'll, we'll make sure Steve Darrow uh, from Hollywood Rose listens to Chinese democracy, which just sounds so weird as, as, as a sentence. Uh, yeah. So uh, for everybody else, when are you going to see the next episode? Who will the next guest be? Well, in the words of Axel Rose concerning Chinese democracy, you'll see it, I don't know, as soon as the word. Thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home.